Hello and welcome to Act Your Age, a podcast for two adults dive into young adult books in order to discuss how their appeal transcends age and other boundaries. My name is Tasia. And I'm Corinne. And today we are talking about Call Down the Hawk chapters 1 through 38 by Maggie Stiefvater with a special guest, friend of the pod, Joy. Say hi, Joy. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us here today, Joy. Joy is someone we met in kind of the same way that Tasia and I met through our podcast Slack for the Storm. And we are very excited you're here because, Joy, you seem to have the same intense level of connection to these books as we do. Feel like that's fair to say? Yeah, I would say so. It was exciting finding you guys because I love this series so much. I'm just, you know, uh, one of those adults who like YA. And I feel like there's a lot of that, but there's a difference between uh, us who like obsess about it. So, like, I've given this series out to so many people and they're like, oh, yeah, it's really good. And I was like, no, no, talk more with me about it. I want to yeah. keep talking about it. <laughs> and so, um, and whatever, they're great and they'll talk a little bit, but I can tell they don't want to indulge as much as I do. And like, I was telling you guys, you know, I planned half my honeymoon around this. We did like a, you know, a road trip through um, rural Virginia. And then afterwards, I kind of was looking into stuff. I was like, oh, no, I stayed in the wrong town. I stayed in Lexington. I'm pretty sure Henrietta is Harrisonburg. So then I planned like another trip, especially since like Maggie tweeted something about going to uh, Harper's Ferry to like Mm -hmm. plan like for like settings. I was like, I have to go to Harper's Ferry. So then Mm -hmm. for like Mother's Day, I took my mom out to like Amish country. And then the way back, we went all the way through and it was great. And then we found this like Airbnb that was like practically the barns. And it was just like heaven. You sent us the link for that Airbnb and I've saved it. And I'm like, okay, we need to go there someday. Like maybe when the third dreamer book comes out, I like to have like a commune of Raven cycle fanatics staying in this barns like place to read. Yeah. It was fully magical. Like it's the, like the pictures are, it was like incredible. And it was like May. So everything was just like gorgeous. But yeah, so very excited to, yeah, be able to talk about this. That's incredible. That's the level of commitment and investment in the series that we very <laughs> much appreciate. So this is going to be fun to talk about here today. Before we dive into this book itself, we always like to start with what we're kind of really into this week. I'll go first. I have basically nothing and a very, very busy week and really got this reading in under the wire, if I am being honest with y'all. And so my other only true obsession this week is the Shadow and Bone trailer that dropped a couple of days ago. I have watched it an inordinate amount of times. I'm so hyped. As we've talked about on the podcast here when we covered those books, particularly the trilogy is fine. I love Six of Crows, but uh, the Shadow and Bone trilogy is just fine to me. But the show looks awesome and I think it's going to be better than the books and I'm real excited about it. Cat's record with his cane, man. Mine is basically the same as yours. I haven't, I haven't had time to get into anything else besides Call Down the Hawk, but the Shadow and Bone trailer, absolutely obsessive. How about you, Joy? What are you into these days? I've been for like the last month or so rereading the Graceling series by Christian Kishore. I don't know. Have you guys read this at all? I've read them. They came out a long time ago. So this was like 2008 to 2012 was the original trilogy. But then I just found out when the fourth book came out, which like a month ago, and I hadn't been expecting it. But this was like, that was, it came out right around when I first started listening to YA as an adult again. I'm like, I just finished my coursework in grad school. And so it was like Mm -hmm. the perfect timing. And then I got super into it. And it's interesting reading this right after having done a deep dive of the Raven cycle again. So I started the rereads 
after the Raven King before I jumped into Call It on the Hawk. And they're still really good. But this was a series when people would say like, oh, what are your like favorite series? I'd say the Raven King, Graceling, and then Daughter Smoke and Bone. And this just, it's still really good, but just compared to the writing, it's just not the same. It's just like, the writing's good, but just that level of depth that Maggie does, where it's like, every sentence just tells you everything about everyone, and it's just not at that same level. Um, I still would recommend it to people, and I think like compared to a lot of YA books, like the characters are just really mature, especially as it goes on, like... A, the characters get more mature, but also the world like literally builds and builds and just like they discover new worlds. And it's very sex positive. There's a lot of really great female characters, a lot of good book boyfriends. It's pretty political, like this last book in particular. And then the third book, which is Bitter Blue, it's super, super dark, which I had forgotten about. It's all just about dealing with trauma and like cultures, like dealing with kind of being abused for a while, like how you kind of overcome that. So it's really heavy. It's a lot, but I do recommend it. I think it's definitely strong still for a series, a YA series. And then going from that and then reading, like starting right off with the prologue, which I can have a lot to say about. It was just like, oh yeah, like this is just such different levels. I would recommend it. Not everyone can be Maggie Seawater, which is probably good because I can't handle this like same level of obsession that I feel for her books. So let's dive in now into this book, which... Guys, I'm feeling this is going to be a long episode. So much happens. I was typing up the summary and it's quite long. So I'm just going to jump into it. Ronan tries to move to Cambridge, Massachusetts to be closer to Adam, who now goes to Harvard, but ruins Adam's storm after he brings back a host of things from his dreams. He is forced to return to the barns, the only place he can dream with regularity and avoid the night wash that occurs when he doesn't dream. His dreams are increasingly visited by the mysterious bride who talks about how the world has been stolen from dreamers. Declan calls Ronan back to D.C. as Matthew continues to engage in erratic, alarming behavior. While Ronan is in town, he and Declan visit the illicit fairy market, where they buy a painting by their father called the Dark Lady, which features a woman who looks remarkably like Aurora Lynch, their mother. Ronan is desperate to find out more about a woman he and Declan see at the fairy market who looks just like the woman from the Dark Lady, and he follows her only to find that she is in the company of someone who looks identical to his deceased father. Adam returns to the barns in order to see Ronan and to learn more about Bride. Another dreamer named Hennessy is also after the Dark Lady, as the painting is said to force those near it to dream of the ocean. Hennessy is desperate for the painting because whenever she dreams, she brings back a copy of herself, and this is slowly killing her. Hennessy's first and most independent copy, Jordan, meets Declan at the fairy market, and the two have an instant connection, though Jordan only goes on a date with him so that Hennessy and the other copies can steal the Dark Lady from his home. Elsewhere, a group of people called the Moderators seek to avoid the impending apocalypse by hunting dreamers. They do so via visionaries, people who have visions of dreamers, but slowly kill themselves in the process of having these visions. Carmen Farouk Lane aids in the murder of her own brother, a dreamer himself, before being assigned to monitor a visionary named Parsifal Bauer. So, like I said, there's a lot happening in this series. I don't know. I, I think both of you probably were way more into this series as a whole before this book came out and had expectations about what it was going to be about. I kind of read them back to the back mm-hmm. called on the Hawk came out like right as I was reading the series for the first time. So I didn't have a chance to have expectations. I can anticipate though, that like these two other main characters or two main other plots that we get was not expected. Is that accurate? Yeah. <laughs> or like what was or the just- expectation coming 
like with this book coming out. I guess I was just laughing because I was just like, oh, lucky you. You didn't have like a year of waiting and not having any details of like a deadline, anything like that. I know. Although, I mean, the wait since I finished reading this book has been unbearable. But like, I think, KJ, you said previously, like you were shocked how little Adam there was in this book. Yeah, it was. um, I knew there were going to be new characters and obviously, you know, completely different plot. Some characters weren't going to be there like Gansy and Blue. But I was not expecting that some of these other characters are going to have as big of a part as as Carmen and Liliana and Parsifal and the moderators did. I was expecting that for Jordan Hennessy as we knew her in the fandom then because we weren't really sure if she was two different people. But yeah, as far as the other ones, I didn't, I had no idea. I was very surprised that Carmen and Parsifal would, and Liliana would be taking up so much of the book. I was surprised to just even like hearing you say that description. And I think one of the th- things that you guys even noticed in the Raven Kings was it's not super plot heavy. So like Maggie had been warning that these books were a lot different, but I think part of the reason that the Raven Kings that I liked about it, it's like this quest and it's not really about that. It's about the relationships. And this is such a, you really do need to pay attention to the plot. And so the first time reading it, I definitely was disappointed. And I was also very confused because I was just like stressed out about Adam and I'm stressed out about Ronan. I'm just like waiting to get to those parts. And so I kind of wasn't paying as much attention to all these other characters that I wasn't invested in yet. And there was a lot of them and a lot of time on it. So I was just super confused. But on this read, I liked it a lot better. Yeah, I think it's interesting because it is so much more plot focused than the main series was, but we still get so much good character stuff. Mm -hmm. I really think in a lot of ways, to me, like having read them all in rapid succession here, I think it's her best written book out of yeah. like anything Raven cycle related minus. And I think Joy, you noted this too. Like how can she not keep track of October versus November? This is the same problem for the Raven King. I don't get it. Like, I don't understand she re- Like it didn't, weren't the, like wasn't called on the Hawk re- reprinted once they realized like, cause they had sent out the whole like first batch of books and realized that. Oh, did they? Yeah. And mm. then I think they reprinted it to make it so that it was, October until it was Ronan's birthday. That's really interesting. Okay. That makes me feel a little bit. That's what I don't understand. Like in the Raven King. Okay. We never really get in the Raven King that November 1st is Ronan's birthday. Like that's not stated. Mm-hmm. That is stated multiple times here. Like his birthday is on the murder crabs. I know. Bride talks about it. So it's really kind of astounding stuff. But, but other than that, I think this book is just, it's the plot is so compelling mm-hmm. and all the character stuff is so compelling. It's really a good combination of those two um, in a way that I don't think the main series quite is. Which I, I guess I'm glad about because I don't know that I had room in my heart to feel quite the same way about new characters as I did already about yeah. like Adam and Ronan and Declan. And so it's, I guess it's good that we're not getting quite so much like character level work on the same level as we did in the main series because otherwise I would just be like a mess about everyone. Maybe I will be by the end, but I'm not quite a mess about like Jordan and Hennessy and Carmen at all in the same way i'm not a mess yet but it's really amazing like how much especially on this read when i actually am trying to care she she, like paints them so well like she doesn't have all the time that she did like developing like four novels worth of character development and like a page you like a chapter you feel you know so much about carmen and parsival and all that stuff like i think i agree with you in terms of just like the level of like writing quality it's pretty amazing yeah yeah she does do a lot with so little i do feel like i know all these new people pretty well even by this midway point where we're stopping Mm -hmm. to discuss here today 
But at the end of the day, really, and I guess there's no other more logical place to start. This is a story about the Lynch brothers. And that's how this book starts. And man, again, as we talked about before, Maggie just like hits prologues out of the park. So good. I love this prologue. I can't imagine reading this book if you've never read the Raven Cycle, but it's a really good introduction to these these Lynch bros. I'm still dying to hear from somebody who has read Call Down the Hawk that has not read the Raven Cycle because I'm just so curious to see like what their connection with Ronan and Adam like how that connection is without the context of their entire relationship building up. Like, I want to know what that experience is. Me too. I can't, I can't imagine it. I can't, I can't separate what I already know about Adam and Ronan to like assess their relationship on a foundational level. I try reading this book, pretending like I don't know anything, but (laughs) you can't pretend like you don't know anything when you actually know something. But, um, and it's like, it's, we don't just know things we're like obsessive about. So yeah, exactly. Like, I'm like, like, okay, okay. Extra pretend that. like you don't know, but, uh, what, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. What I thought was so interesting too, is like what you're saying, it can tell you so much about them, but what we know is it's so kind of surface level, like all the descriptions of Ronan, I feel if you hadn't read the previous books, you'd be like, oh yeah, like I, you feel like you know him, but then us who have, it's like, no, there's this entire sensitive under part of him besides just that like tough exterior like the same thing that they say about Declan so it's like we know because we read those previous books but it would still be a good introduction for anyone who didn't right yeah and also because all that we're getting from Adam is is through Ronan's POV mm-hmm. so there's this multiple other sides of Adam too like there's a coldness to him there's a darkness to him there's a dangerous quality mm-hmm. to Adam Parrish that Ronan just doesn't think about Ronan thinks about just how much he loves and wants Adam Parrish Maggie does this really well where she she drops information or she gives us information about like the backstory and about the the events of the Raven cycle so that we have that context but she doesn't do it in a very like exposition dump like heavy-handed kind of way where I've read a lot of books that aren't even spin-offs. They're like direct sequels and yet they feel the mm-hmm. need to recap everything that happened in previous books. And Maggie does not do that. She just she is trusting her audience to keep up with her. And I, I love that. Yeah, she did that so well. Like the part of kind of what happened with Adam and um, his dad and the beating, just how she in one paragraph just kind of summarized it all so well. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe like a good place to start is to talk about the Lynch brothers then as a collective and then kind of talk about them each individually, because I think that like to talk about what they're all going through in this book, like necessarily comes from their relationship to each other and their like familial relationship. So we get the, we get this prologue, which like lays things out really well, but then we get the first real scene with them is they're in the car traveling from DC up to Harvard. And I, love this scene mm-hmm. so much the bit with the protein bar like it's so funny it's such a little brother move like stealing a bite of your of your it brother's is. protein bar one of the things that i think that you are probably missing out on if you haven't read the main series before reading this is the evolution of the relationship between mm-hmm. ronan and Declan from where it was in that, those books to where it is here i mean it just warms my heart that this is like just good natured brotherly like ribbing of each other mm-hmm. and it's not laced with that same animosity that we felt in the main series and that's partially because we get Declan's POV in this book too which we we got a couple of chapters of in the main series but 
you know, Ronan had so much anger towards Declan for pretty much the entire series. And it's without telling us that he feels differently about Declan. Maggie shows us us that here with, again, just kind of poking fun at his brother in a way that is not quite as antagonistic as it was in the main Well, and managing to be in the same room as him or in the same car as him without like a physical brawl, like that, that in itself is evidence of Ronan's evolved feelings for Declan. I love it so much. So I really liked that you get a good insight into all three of them who they are. Like Matthew just being Matthew in the backseat, sweet angel that he is. Yeah. It's a it's a really good scene. And the idea too of Declan being on board with this idea of at of Ronan going to to be with Adam is just like such a huge departure. He's no longer micromanaging or trying to micromanage Ronan's life in quite the same way way that he was in the series and it's different because Ronan's an adult now and he can't in the same way but it doesn't feel like Declan is trying to do that to the same level he's realizing that that was not the correct way to manage Ronan at all yeah I think one of it's when you have the two POVs it's interesting how well they both know and anticipate each other and like their behaviors and they can predict it and how what a good read they have on each other yet they're not great on each other's motives all the time and I think Ronan at some point points like picks that out and says that but Declan definitely has a bit better read on Ronan and like he pegs Ronan's relationship with Adam I think he has such a good read on that it makes sense that he would have a better read on Ronan since he's been protecting him his whole life you know ever since he was a kid so I love that that look at that look at it because it's you're you're right. Like Declan has had to watch Ronan with a discerning eye for their entire life, whereas Ronan is just now realizing there's more to his brother than he previously thought. Oh, I love that. The connoisseur of um, Ronan's moods. It says at one point. Yeah, it's perfect. I mean, that's exactly what he is. It's great. I do think too. You're so right about Declan having such a keen understanding of. Ronan and Adam's relationship too. I love that part too, especially in the context of some of these scenes that Declan's in, in the main series that we have kind of had to, at the time, think about what we thought he was thinking about. Uh, The scene where Ronan pretends to be asleep and like throws his legs over Adam in the backseat. You know, a lot of people who didn't like Declan, I think tried to paint some more nefarious motives of Declan, like kind of scowling at it. But really now we know that Declan is just so concerned about Ronan and their family secrets that that's what he's most concerned about. And so for him to now in this book be thinking about Adam and it's like, okay, well, Adam plays the long game. And so that's a good influence. And Adam is like so devoted to Ronan. You only spend a moment in their company. Like, okay, he's not going to tell anyone. It's okay. I love to see that thought process from Declan and that real acceptance that, okay, like Adam's here to stay. We have to like bring him into the fold Mm -hmm. and that's okay. And we can mostly trust him on this stuff. What other general Lynch bro thoughts? Not necessarily Lynch bro, but um, in relation to Lynch fam in general. Yeah. Um, so we we talked a bit last week about Opal and the woman who came to the barns and how she might come up in, in the Dreamer trilogy. Mm-hmm. And I I did say like before about how I have that the theory about her being like a daughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm really curious to see how she comes up, especially with Morcora and the new Fenian 
running around. I wonder if we're going to run into her too. I mean, we have to, right? Because Maggie wouldn't leave something like that dangling. Yeah, that is like the biggest question I have from this book too. And, you know, we'll talk more about it next week too. If I don't remember anything in the back half of this book, I haven't read it since it came out. But there's so many questions about the Lynch family at large here. So we have Maura Cora here who looks like Aurora and is the woman in the dark lady painting. And then we also have this Nile copy running around too. And then we have these mentions of these like aunt and uncle who get mentioned way more often for them not to eventually be a thing. And they're not a thing in the back half of the book. So like, who are they? What is going on? I still have so many questions about it. I want to know how they came to be so close to Niall Lynch Mm -hmm. that he allowed them with around his family because we know that he kept them very intentionally separate from everything at the barns like and Ronan also like t- finds a picture of them and puts it aside so we mm-hmm. like that has to you know this is Chekhov's aunt and uncle right <laughs> they, ha- they have to come up and um with the more Cora stuff I love the implication here because we know that Niall dreamt a copy of more mm-hmm. Cora in Aurora and we know that more Cora dreamt a copy of Niall um as the new Fenian this this talk this level of toxic relationship going on here where it's like fuck you no fuck you all right i'm gonna dream myself a better copy of you but so am i like i don't know like i know it's terrible and it's toxic but for some reason it's fucking hilarious to me that both of them are just like so petty and so shitty that they did this i feel like an idiot i did not realize that she dreamt the copy of nile I would. Well, I, I don't know where I thought. Assumption. No, no, yeah, that we, makes complete sense. Who else would have done that? So yeah, it's so bizarre. It's so weird. I can't wait to get more of more Cora going forward because, you know, we've talked in the previous episodes, and we'll talk about it a little bit more here when we get into some of like the Declan stuff. I think too, the family stuff is a big, a big deal. But like Niall is shit. We hate him, and then Aurora was ostensibly very lovely in a lot of ways but she had her own limitations based on what Niall dreamt from her and really especially for Declan could not be the mother that he needed or deserved and and I don't think too probably gave quite enough substance in a lot of ways Mm. to Ronan or Matthew's life I think and we'll talk about this here in a second because I have big thoughts on like Ronan's like thoughts on family and how those kind of shake out in this book, but like neither of them were great parents mm. in different ways. But it's like really interesting to see how like more Cora then saves Ronan, like very gently, like puts them in the backseat of that car, puts the keys where he can find them. Very big deductive reasoning skills from Ronan. I've seen too. He's like, well, the car is pushed up very far, so it must have been her, or the front seat is pushed up very far. It must have been her. So it's like that's a level of care and concern that I find very intriguing for someone that we are at this point. Like we're ninety nine percent sure, like she is not Ronan's mother the way yeah. that she is Declan's mother. So it's just like I have a lot of questions about her. I'm very intrigued to find out more. Right, and everything that we do know about Morikora that she's like heading up this terrifying organization, Boudica, and she's yeah. described as a pre- as a pretty ruthless, terrifying person. So for her, who ostensibly has no motivation to save Ronan, because not only is she not his mother, but she he is he is a result of the insult that of Niall dreaming a copy of her. So he is like adding insult to injury by just very, you know, barely existing. So I, 
I'm really curious about her motivation for doing that. I wonder if, because I know that, um, that's a copy of Nile when this is a thing that happens in the second half, but when he does meet up with Declan, he tells him that he knows that he's not Declan's father, but he, and he's not Nile, but he still feels that love uh-huh. that like fatherly thing. So I wonder if he feels that for Ronan as well. And if so, if, if he was the impetus behind her saving him. Yeah. Oh, that's that interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I have a lot of like Boudicca thoughts too. Mm -hmm. And like, we don't get a ton of it, but like just this like moment of softness for Morikora, Mm -hmm. like kind of makes me feel like the fear of that Boudicca brings to this already very fear, fearsome Mm -hmm. world makes me think that it's a front. What better way to protect your family, protect the fact that you're a dreamer from the outside world I mean, t- by trading in fear. It's the same type of thing that kind of Declan does. He trades in like boredom and mediocrity in the attempt to try to keep the the villains at bay. So I think it'll be really interesting to see how I think that Morikor and Boudicca will play a big part in Endgame, but in the side of like on the winning side, the side we want. But it's the that. fear though that like by putting the name down, like people don't want to go against it, but like, Maybe this is in the back half, but didn't like Jordan say that she was like approached by them to be a part of it. And then from that angle, it was like more of this protection that she could have, which I mean, I guess is like a mob thing, which also is scary, but I don't know, I guess it's like depending on what side of it you're on. So kind of what you're saying. Because you do have to pay for that protection too. And and Jordan in the second half, she did, she did bring up about somebody who had faltered on their payments and gotten, gotten fucked up. From it so oh very interesting very chewy I'm excited. <laughs> but about the Morikora thing if while we're before we move yeah. on to that do we have any idea like when Declan found out about her or like that I guess a when Aurora wasn't his birth mother but then b when this was an option of finding out who his birth mother was I don't know that I we think know it was that. a suspicion mm-hmm. before he he looked at the back of the painting or or saw her. Yeah, I mean, he had to like... I don't know how he got that suspicion. Yeah, I don't know how he got that suspicion because yeah, when he looks at the back of the painting, he he like knows it's going to basically change everything and that he shouldn't mm-hmm. go down that path. But like, why? Why did he know to look at the back of that yeah, painting? Yeah, yeah, I don't know like that, that we know. Yeah, okay. I imagine that Niall might have let something slip or mentioned something about something. Yeah, that makes sense. That Declan internalized and probably sat on for years and years. Yeah, that gift of gab it gives it takes away. That's so dumb too. I didn't realize it was like literally a key. Like the first read through, I kind of thought like the key was like what was on the back of it. It was like this key to his past or whatever. It's like, oh no, that key they're talking about at the beginning is like literally a key to the apartment. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's maybe talk about Declan next then while we're on the subject. Because I love everything about Declan in this book. <laughs> Oh much. I mean, I love him in the main series too. <laughs> Number one, I would die for him. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but like me loving him in the series is totally colored by the fact that as I read the series for the first time, I was in constant textual communication with Tasia, who had an ulterior motive <laughs> on many levels and getting me to read the series, one of which was certainly to pepper in her Declan Lynch propaganda. So I can't like correct <laughs> my mind. So, it absolutely is Declan Lynch propaganda. <laughs> it is, but like, even if I didn't have, even if I wasn't like being led by me, like, <laughs> like, like yeah, 
prepared to feel this way. I think everything with Declan in this book is so well done. He is such a fascinating character. He is, to me, in a lot of ways, like his idea of wanting something more, which he says when he cuts open the the back of the painting, really, to me, works on such a, a... better level than I don't I don't want to like cast aspersions on Blue Sergeant but like we talked about this a lot in terms of her life was like pretty good in a lot of ways but when Declan Lynch says he wants something more it's all I want in the world for him is to want to have something more because his life has been so shitty to this point and I just I can't the form of boring that he practices it's just it's so sad like just It says, some forms of boring suggest that the wearer deep down inside might actually be a person of whimsy and nuance, but Declan made certain to to practice a form of boring that suggested that deep down inside there was an even more boring version of him. The the amount of, because we know that he is an interesting person and that he does have passions and stuff and that he deeply represses all of these things. So just the, the amount of constant work that it would require to keep up this facade that he has Enough to the point that even his brothers think that he's a fuddy-duddy. And the fact that he is, what, 21 years or 20 years old? 2021. And he is, like, knocking back antacids. Like, they're going out of style just to be able to eat anything. Like, this is is just a deeply traumatized child, basically. I know. That was really, yeah, the antacid stuff is just really heartbreaking. I also, like, love all the Declanisms. Especially mm-hmm. my absolute favorite was um, other hits include let's focus on the real action item. And that one I just find so perfect because that is a word I use all the time at work or phrase, I guess. Um, I'm like the vice chair of our like management committee at the thing and my job, like my responsibility is to send out the action items afterwards. But like <laughs> I've never would have used that before like my mid 20s. I'm positive those two words never escaped my mouth. And so that yeah. is a declinism is like amazingly perfect. Yeah, it's such a, a clever way of being like, he's he's going to like excel in something that is so boring. Like, mm-hmm. it, it is kind of boring to like be that type of person that's just like corporate lingo, like jargon. Like, yeah, like there's so many politics bros like that in DC in particular. Like, he's just really fitting in with that really well. But like, right, like the perfect amount of like disappearing yeah but like getting his pov and his like worry and his insight as to his brothers just makes me want to make me want to goddamn cry Declan that line is like me um when I read his his book like when or his povs when he talks about how he had previously been afraid of the idea of a ronin who could who would move to Cambridge but now he was afraid of a ronin who couldn't um, there were Declan thought so many things he was afraid of. It's mm-hmm. just stuff like that, like breaks my heart. He thinks at one point about how he's like concerned about Matthew and how he keeps wandering off and like is very into this forest mm-hmm. overlook, but he could only handle one brother in crisis. Just like, yeah, too much. And then how much it like uh, that he represses, like, and, and this is another one of the reasons why I love Jordan and why I love like the kind of build up to whatever is going on between them. But it says Declan was a collector of beautiful specific phrases that he would not let himself use in public and the possessor of an illuminated specific smile no one would ever see, which is just devastating. But also, I mean, Jordan, like right away starts to see it. Like that's one thing I love about them is that they can pull that real, that true smile out of mm-hmm. each other. Um, yeah. 
And just, yeah. I mean, all these Declan like quotes in here are just so fucking sad. The he felt he felt he'd lived one thousand years, every one of them hell. <laughs> this man is like twenty years old. My baby. <laughs> and just like the little glimpses you get of the art history love that you have, like that's the one time where it's like his kind of I don't want to say eccentricity, but like his passion can kind of come through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it says a lot about him as a person that you know he's he's trying to create this most boring version of any anybody that he can in uh-huh. order to be invisible, and that his version of that is a a, a poli sci like political uh-huh. intern when you know his real self is is an art ho. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, and I love what he says too about art when he's talking with Ronan about the paintings, and he says something like. You know, someone said something about how, like, paintings, like, what it makes you feel on the inside. And so, like, of course, that makes sense that that's what he's drawn to is, like, Mm -hmm. something that, like, it's a very safe on the surface interest to have. But, like, it allows him to dive into feelings that he can in the other area of his life. It's just Declan, poor Declan. We talked about this a little bit already, but like his thoughts on Ronan and like knowing how Ronan is is struggling and we'll talk about Ronan struggling in a minute, but like how Declan is so worried that he comes back to the barns and like makes Ronan make a schedule is just really endearing. I This quote like broke my heart too. He knew Ronan was failing at the barns. The farm he adored wasn't enough for him. His brothers weren't enough for him. Adam wasn't really enough for him either. But Declan knew he hadn't gotten that far yet. There was something strange and yawning and hungry inside Ronan. And Declan knew that he could either feed it or risk losing Ronan to a far mundane ending. And by extension, lose his other brother to his entire family. I know. That's That's the thing, too, is we were saying only one brother can fall apart at a time. And, like, Matthew's going through all this. But if, like, Ronan something happens to Ronan it's like end it's game for all of them too. yeah mm-hmm. um and then I can imagine Declan without without the brothers like mm-hmm. just being like so alone and unmoored in the world oh my and on, like on the one hand completely free for the first time in mm-hmm. his entire life but on the other hand like at what cost well and that's what this is where you know like how much Declan loves his brothers Tasha you wrote this whole scene down I it, yeah it hurts cry. It hurts my soul. It's. I think it's one of the most beautiful, beautifully so written uh, paragraphs in this entire book. But it's it's back when he's thinking about when his you know he knew that his mom was going to fall asleep because he knew she was a dream the entire time. And it says he was going to be alone. He thought he was going to be alone, and it was going to be just him and that new terrifying Ronan and Matthew, whose life depended on him. And somewhere out there was something that killed Lynch's. The will is in this. In the cedar box in our bedroom closet, she said into his hair. Declan closed his eyes. He whispered, I hate him. My dauntless Declan, Aurora said. And then she slid slowly to the floor. The orphan's lynch. <laughs> oh my God, Maggie, I hate you. It's so fucked up. Yeah, that scene like kills me. I hate it and love it and equal I'm not sure. Um, I feel like I'm reading every Declan chapter, like every Declan POV with that watery eyes emoji Mm -hmm. face like that's just me the entire time yeah but then I love like the last chapter we get from him in this section is when he's cutting open the back of the painting and I love this line but joy is a small tenacious crop especially in soil that hasn't grown any for a long time and so it lingered with him and he thinks you can't unsee this this is not allowed in the life you are living I want so much more I love that line. He's he's moving he's moving towards it, and that comes on the heels of of him and and Jordan having their uh, nice little moments. I guess we talk about them now. Yeah, 
because I'm way more into it on this reread than I previously was. So the flirting and the banter between them, the way they present themselves is completely opposite from each other, but it works so beautifully together. It's so good. It's kind of like, <laughs> we talked about this before in the main series about how the first time you read the main series, you're so nervous about Gansey dying that you mm-hmm. miss a lot of a lot of what else is going on. And I felt similarly now reading this again. I was so desperate for Adam and Ronan stuff the first time I read this book that I like wasn't really paying attention to the rest of it. Um, move over, Adam Parrish, because Declan <laughs> Lynch might be like that god tier flirter, be- like the top one. The best flirter in, in the series for sure now. I was just like, why? It, if he's trying to go like under the radar, it's like you shouldn't flirt that well. It's you like that's be so make- fucking smooth, bro. I know. Like, <laughs> like that card move is like a move. Yeah, and card- and getting her that that like impossible to get pigment, the Tyrion mm-hmm. purple, yeah. like on a first date, dude. And, th- and then when she like when he's like something about saying his name and he's like say it now he says say it now and i like lost my fucking mind <laughs> or like this line i like made an audible noise when i was reading this on the couch next to my husband and he like looks at me he's like what's funny and i was like okay <laughs> it was just this though he finally turned his head to her he looked at her mouth she just had time to see this to feel it in intense and surprising and agreeable heat and i, that, I like made an audible noise when i read that so i was like <laughs> he looked at her mouth guys who would have ever thought i'd get this worked out hot deck home but here i am tasia you did your job well yeah. yes, so did i was I. gonna say i know someone who would have thought that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i've been getting i get i've been getting worked up over Declan since page one of the raven cycle so but yeah that whole da- uh that whole day at the museum is is so well done they're so like you said tasia so well matched in so many ways they're doing the same thing on for different reasons they're trying Mm -hmm. to vary who they really are you know jordan thinks earlier it'd be stranger for someone to know her by her actual name so then for Declan to call her jordan because he doesn't know that like Mm -hmm. there's hennessy is such important moment for her and it's big Declan vibes to me like she is Declan in a lot of ways and they're both really desperate for people to know the real them and they had to hide it for different reasons and I love that. There's this great quote from Hennessy's POV, and it says, it was impossible to imagine him in class. In class for what? Probably business school, whatever the most boring option was. She was beginning to understand his game. It was the same game as hers, played in the exact opposite way. It's interesting that there's so much, they're such opposites, and but at the same time, both of them, so much of their lives, if not the vast majority of it, is trying to take care of someone else and to protect someone else. So it's going to be really interesting in the next Such book. a good point. Yeah, where they're going to be like isolated and not even really able to be around those people that they're trying to take care of that they like oh, yeah. generally try to wait. control as much. Yeah, it's going to be crazy. Oh my God. I completely forgot about where this series is going. God, there's so much good stuff. Yeah. I also love how they kind of immediately get each other's numbers. Mm-hmm. It says, why don't you dress the rest of you like your feet? Because she, she notices about his shoes. And he says, why do you only paint what other people have already painted? And then she thinks, touche, touche. Like they, they've already got each other just pinned down. It's, it's so great. It's perfect. And I love to, because Ronan thinks about this too, about how Declan took this gift of Niles for storytelling and he's really embraced that. Mm-hmm. And she, I, first of all, I love that story about the judge. She just like fucks off to Venice and is like, I'm going to host clearly, all these painters here. Clearly Declan's like 
wish list, you know, like that, that is his little hope chest. Yeah. But then he, he tells that story and Jordan thinks he was a good storyteller. It was obvious. He liked the sound and play of words released into the air. So like she's picking on something that's vital about Declan that like really only Ronan has picked up on before. And I mm-hmm. love that. She clocks his real laugh. Like she can tell when like the real version of him yeah. is coming up. I just, I love every interaction. I also them. love that he like catches himself just in case he's mansplaining something. Like he starts uh-huh. to tell her the story and then he's like, wait, have you heard this? Stop me. If, if, you know, I don't want to bore you. We love a man that is like, mm-hmm. wait a minute. You probably know this. Like, don't let me bore you. This is more of a um, Jordan specific thing, but I also just really like that. She's like always painting sergeants just because, I mean, it's not related, but it's like, Oh, blue's kind of sort of here. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, that's probably where her name came from. Right. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. I would I would assume. I don't know for sure, but yeah, I mean Maggie is a big art person mm-hmm. if you don't follow her on socials. It isn't like the whole impetus for the Raven Cycle is that one painting. Yeah. I forget what it's called. Maybe I'll find it and I'll try to share it on Instagram where like a girl is like walking up the stairs and like has her back turned to a boy and it's very clearly blue and gans. So yeah, she's a very like this is all very well researched. All these paintings are real. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's really cool to like Google and like look up the ones that are mentioned here. Mm-hmm. Um, the one I forget what his name is, the guy who like paints like in all black that Ronan likes. <laughs> like it literally just is like black, black yeah. painting. Yeah. Um, so it's really cool to see in Google like look what the characters are relating to, and it kind of like makes sense once you do. Somebody made a post on Tumblr where they went and they found all the paintings that are mentioned in the entire book and not just the paintings but like the sculptures and stuff too and it just made a whole like tumblr post of all of them That's and so cool. that was a really nice like reference to go back to and reading and be like okay I, I know this picture i know this one so let's talk about just the idea of hennessy and jordan you know it's interesting like i don't have a lot of hennessy notes written down i have some jordan notes written down which we've kind of already talked about but for me hennessy is probably like the hardest for me to I don't want to say relate to, but I just like don't feel a connection with her yet. I feel the same. Um, I started to towards the back half. So give your, I'm curious to what yeah. you think when you get later in. Yeah. It's just, and I get why she seems kind of glib. This is like really scary shit that she's dealing with. You take what Ronan's dealing with and you like amplify it to and power here like you know Ronan is very concerned about what his future means for Matthew but like Hennessy has all of these other girls depending on her and she has really been in this situation that Ronan's only been in for a few months with the Nightwash she's been in this like her whole life so I don't mean to sound unsympathetic towards her Mm -hmm. but at the same time she is really pushing everyone else away while and like trying to deal with this alone and they're mm-hmm. all the copies are trying to like help her and be with her and she's not letting them and this is a little frustrating to read i think yeah yeah well especially since it sounds like sorry this is a little bit back half too that's okay. it sounds like the issue of like the dreams and then the copies and what it's happening is because she's just not really reckoning with her trauma and just trying to like isolate herself like at least that was my inter I'm, I'm very confused about the lace thing my interpretation was it sounded like there's some kind of dissociation going on and that's how the like, copies are coming in. So it's almost yeah. like if she kind of addressed and wasn't trying to handle all these things, actually dealt with stuff, 
it would help the situation. Well, I mean, that always I feel like she's kind of in her like Adam in the dream thieves phase of, of reckoning with her trauma and with everything that's going on. Yeah. So, because she does come off as cold, as distant, as, as trying to be very much like army of one lone wolf. And and if, yeah, it's, it feels very like Adam Parrish. Yeah. That's a really good point. And to, like, I can't even begin to reckon with how like traumatizing is that she keeps dreaming the mm-hmm. same exact thing, which is why she only brings back these copies is that like, she's always dreaming of her. It's her mother's death. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Her mom's suicide. And yeah. It's horribly traumatic. Her. Yeah. Like, yeah. Jesus so Christ. she doesn't have anywhere near the same mastery of her dreams that Ronan does, which is either because Ronan is this very powerful dream, which we've talked about before, or it's because she is so, held back by her her trauma. I think that's going to be a huge part coming forward too when we get this more in the back half. But like in the next book is her learning to dream other things, which I can't wait for Ronan mm-hmm. to teach her more about. Madison yeah. is also dealing with a ton of self-hatred because of yeah. what she, you know, because she keeps dreaming these copies that are that are real girls. You know, they, they do have their own distinct personalities from each other, even though they are all made of bits and pieces of her and knowing that if something were to happen to her, then they would all die and they would all suffer and, or fall asleep. And, and despite the fact that she kind of wants to die herself because she is over, you know, she's over it. Well, and that's something too, that even Ronan has always had a hard time reckoning. Like he's at a good place in terms of his dreaming, but like there, the, I don't have this line, but about just, when he sees all the animals and just how much there's not enough confessions for bringing Matthew into the world or something. So that's the mm-hmm. one area where he still hasn't really been able to reckon with. So if like, that's all Hennessy's ever dreamed. It, yeah. I can't imagine what that would have been like. Yeah. I think it goes back to also Hennessy kind of lovingly referring to all the girls as bitch when she addresses mm-hmm. them. And I think that's really an expression of her own self-hatred, mm-hmm. but it's like, funny and glib but oh, yeah. it is i think just her being like bitch because it's her face she's looking at yeah. yeah i love the little glimpses that we get of the other copies I and mean, we don't get a ton of them in this front half but like when we get the most jordan obviously but they're all different but they're all hennessy and it's it's right. really fascinating to think about that and then did one of you have something written down about forging yeah that was a question i had which was I know that George, I was basically like, kind of, is there any type of supernatural ability to their ability to forge? Because she, Jordan basically is like, well, if you put your mind inside of a forger, that's how you can do it so well. But it does just seem like a little bit supernatural, just as like how good they are. So I didn't know if it's like that Hennessy was a talented artist and then she specialized kind of in forgeries. So then her copies have her art skills. And since they, don't feel like they have the ability to do anything original since they're copies, then they just like double down on forgeries or something. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the line that I would take. And I know because I I think this, because they aren't like when Jordan is trying to copy the um, invitation to the, Mm -hmm. um, the fairy market, she's not getting it right, right away. Yeah. And if it were, I think a supernatural thing, I think it would have just been like, bam, got these done. But she has to sit and work with it for hours. Um, Hennessy comes in and she's like, "You need to stretch the canvas. You need to do this." So I think I don't I don't necessarily believe that it's a supernatural thing, but it is a, a, an acquired skill that they have put a lot of focus on. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
The other line about them that I liked was sometimes Hennessy forgot that Jordan was actually her. Sometimes she thought Jordan forgot that too. But I was thinking like, if they have a decade of separate memories, then really aren't they separate people? Or even just like the fact that these copies have the perspective of being copies and knowing that they're copies, like that makes you a different person. So as much as they keep saying that they're the same, they're really not. Yeah. Remind me again, I'm jumping ahead, but like, and we'll talk about this next week, but at the end, Declan and Jordan and Matthew are together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested to see Matthew interact with another dream. It's all like the him? little the little hints that Maggie has posted mm-hmm. where like it's clearly Matthew asking Jordan, like, oh, you know, why why does he treat you like a real person? And she's like, Because I am a real person. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought so it was good. great having all this POV of Jordan um and then comparison to Matthew, just because it does show you how much of like Matthew's affectations or like behaviors or personality or whatever is really just such a symptom, not a symptom, but a reaction to him being created when Ronan was a toddler and not just because of a dream. Because the only other time we ever saw a dream was Aurora, who kind of had that simpleness too. So like now you're like, oh no, that is not, like a dream can't have a lot of complexity to him. Yeah, that was just because now it was a little shit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Hennessy was a kid though, like when she dreamed Jordan. Mm. So like, that's really fascinating to me that she seems to have, dreamt this very full formed person now so that's a very interesting question of like to what extent like your upbringing affects you i mean it seems to me that hennessy and the copies have had to like really work hard to survive this whole time matthew has had multiple people just like looking out for him his whole life and he's a charm bomb that everyone around him just loves him so he's had a very different experience and he hasn't maybe like had to tap into a lot of the things that like, you know, maybe Matthew does have more depth to him, but like no one has ever really pushed him to try. Whereas mm-hmm. the other copies other dreams we've uh, met have had to be more fully formed when they've known they've been dreams from the very beginning too. But also right. maybe it's a difference of like, they were actually copies. So like Jordan, I mean, Hennessy in theory, like knew herself. So she's creating this fully formed copy of something that she knew because it's her. Whereas like, if you're dreaming someone completely different, I mean, not even if you were just a toddler, it's like they're not necessarily all there, you know? Right. That's true. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. Okay. So let's then, I think, because we're going to get into more like theorizing territory once we start talking about Ronan, let's talk about Carmen and Parsifal here. Again, before we get to the big section here on Ronan. <laughs> so this is another section too that the first time I was reading, I was just kind of like, really bored by not bored by but like first of all you're immediately like set up to dislike carmen because she mm-hmm. like helps murder her brother it's like that's a tough look <laughs> and her brother himself is like i was expecting more complexity from you carmen and and i felt that way about her through most of her chapters so i was like you're you're skimming the surface here like you are just going in line with these guys because one you would like to save the world, but two, you're also just afraid that they think that you're in line with your brother, which at this point mm-hmm. I feel like is a bullshit excuse because why, how and why would they believe that when you sat there and watched your brother get murdered and yeah. allowed that to happen? I didn't realize on the first read, like how soon, like how little time she'd actually been in this world. Like it made it seem like going after her brother was kind of the first hit that she did. Mm -hmm. Um, So I kind of just realized that she wasn't in as deep as I thought she was. So she was just pretty much in out of her element. So I can see her coming out of it 
more easily now. Like I'm fairly convinced she's going to end up like becoming like an ally to the dreamers pretty soon. Like if not by the middle of the next book, just because I think there's one line like her world operated on a system she mostly believed in a systems of law designed to promote ethics and fairness and sustainability of resources. So like once she figures out kind of, and I mean, at the end, she already kind of seems like she's not on the good side of things. So yeah, it to me, it's gonna be really interesting. Like I could already now, like maybe see that by the end when we finally get all of these books like she could be a contender for like favorite character arc because like you don't start someone off like this yeah and she's not she's not gonna stay like this like we just it's impossible you can already see like through the progression of this book like you know she had never had to deal with a visionary she's always just been on like the back end like they get the information from a visionary and they go hunt down the zed the dreamer so she's already learning so much more just even in this first half you know she her interactions with Parsifal. I it's so endearing. I love Parsifal. I do too. A great character. Just to see how this is ruining him. I think you see the effect it has on her. The fact when they find that like old lady dreamer and like she has to call it in, like you can already tell she's starting to waver on it. So mm-hmm. I'm like ready to give her her time. But yeah, it's ice cold. So be involved with killing your brother. I have thoughts on that. We'll save for when we're theorizing about Bride a little bit, but. It was a tough way to start off with Carmen, but I, I'm very interested to go on this journey with her through the back half of this book and throughout the rest of the series. One line that I thought was really interesting about Carmen was she's thinking at one point, the heart was so foolish, she thought her head knew so much better. And I that stuck out to me because it's the opposite of the very famous like one fleeing quote from the Raven King. It's the opposite of kind of what mm-hmm. she tells Gansey that the like, the the head is too wise, the heart is all fire. There you go. And like she basically encourages you know Gansey at that point to just you have to like put aside these thoughts in her your head. And I feel like Carmen's gonna like have that journey herself through this series. She is going to learn to trust more like her natural instincts and her heart and her feelings towards other people versus like what her head is telling her. I'm very interested in Carmen though, too, on like a surface level of like what she does for work. Finance or something? Didn't it make it seem like she's in that? I love the line. She was good at airports because I know you're not supposed to like her, but I respect the person who's good at airports. (laughs) So (laughs) that is quite like a skill set. It is. I I do appreciate that too. I hate people like behind in the security line. Can't handle it. She's off. It makes me very stressed. I don't care. So stressed out. I do like that. But so one of the things that was interesting because so Carmen lives in Chicago, which is where I live. And I, at one point she thinks about how she lives in a row home. And I thought that that was odd because I've never really like heard of places in Chicago be called row homes. You think of like Baltimore and things like that. So I Googled it. Cause I was like, does anyone call houses in Chicago row homes? And there are some row homes in the very traditional way that you would think of like in Baltimore, where it's just like houses like touching each other, like no gaps in between. And they're in like the most wealthy neighborhoods of Chicago, like Lincoln park. And like fancy lake view, like near the lake, very old home. So, damn Carmen, what are you, what are you doing? Respect if you're living in a home. Again, I don't think anyone here would actually use that term. So, sorry, yeah, I've never been <laughs> Chicago too. So, that's some mostly yeah. houses, but exactly. So that was just interesting. So yeah, I'm interested to get to see her journey. I really love while we're here talk about Parsifal and like his little journey in this book i mean spoiler for the back half of the book parcel doesn't make it out of this and it's really sad that like visionaries have to like either 
kill everyone around them or kill themselves essentially is like the only way that they can have these visions. And that's really sad. The stuff with his family is really sad, but him also trying to be like a better person and like nice to people because Carmen tells him to, is the most endearing thing I've ever read. Like the evolution of their, like, why are you even trying? But he is. The evolution of their relationship is really sweet and very sad one because obviously it's, it's all for nothing in the end, but yeah, he does. He does try to like start being more careful with the way he used, he talks to people and stuff. It's it's really sad. Percival Bauer had just been polite to another human being because of her miracles never ceased. But that entire part in the German restaurant, I just that was like my second favorite funniest part after the um, cow balloon, which cow I'm balloon. sure we'll get into. <laughs> yeah, but I find it so difficult to read that whole part because I'm just I'm cringing so hard and feeling that secondhand embarrassment so hard. But then like when you find out that like he just wants what his mother made, but he killed his mother the first time he had a vision mm-hmm. and like his whole family, it's horribly depressing. Yeah. And Wow. Yeah, no, but it's seen it so good. I also like Googled because I do like to bake as evidenced mm-hmm. by the fact that I have baked along with the podcast previously. I was like, oh, like maybe I'll try to make this bee sting cake. Seems a little too complicated for um, <laughs> just whipped together today. So, but maybe sometime in the future, I'll make it in honor of Parsifal. I actually saw a box of, because I, I like to go to the world market all the time mm. and they had a box of like bee sting cake like a nice. little pre-made thing oh, there see, i thought about getting way it. to do it yeah. yeah maybe i should and i'll do the baking this time hey yes there you go may it go better than my november cakes did because <laughs> i mean they looked good to me <laughs> you know they tasted good but it was quite a, a process to get them made and i blame maggie and her recipe for if you're listening this is a recipe from maggie stiefvater's standalone novel the scorpio races which we covered uh, last on the pod and i tried to make these November cakes, and I don't think the recipe was right. So it's Maggie's fault. <laughs> Not my fault, Maggie's fault. Anyway, before Let's, we move off to Carmen, can oh, I yeah. just make like they like lock calls her at the airport? It's just like you're really you're the best person at this, you're so good at this day on. But it's like I don't know what she had done to like prove that because she I mean, you see her, she did what she wasn't the one who seemed to be very involved in any of the stuff in Ireland. And then later when she's at the ferry market, like she's not good at it. Like the one thing she ends up spending money on is the psychic when she's trying to like stay under the radar. Like that's real dumb. So it's like, I'm kind of just like wondering what she had done to like prove herself into this world. Yeah. Cause they, they mentioned later that like what she's good at is the dealing with the people and stuff, but she hadn't, you know, cause people like her and she's mm-hmm. approachable or whatever, but she hadn't really dealt with any people except for the yeah. moderators. She hadn't had responsibility of a bit. I don't think she'd ever even met a visionary before Parsifal came under her care. So yeah, that's a really well, good point. This is something that's getting into the back half of the book. And I don't have a lot of thoughts about it. Cause again, I've only ever read it once. And I just am basing this off of like Tumblr thoughts that I've read, but like, you know, there's a lot of theories out there about like her and Liliana. Right. And like the Liliana, we do meet, we have one chapter with her in this first half and she's a visionary. We, it, we have assumed correct. Like, do they confirm that in the back half? I can't remember. I think it's confirmed in the back half. Yeah. So she is a visionary and has this like very um, alarming chapter where she like kills this woman who gives her a ride um, hitchhiking, but also like controls her thoughts kind of. And it's very weird, but there's some connection between her and and Carmen that we get more of in the back half. And it's still not entirely clear by the end of the book. But I wonder whether the moderators, this organization, 
knows something about Carmen and Liliana and are trying to keep Carmen under their control so that she like oh, can't be with Liliana. Hmm. I don't know. And Maggie has reblogged or not reblogged, but a uh, retweeted fan art of Carmen and Liliana, like in a romantic oh, interesting. type type thing. So I think right. I think that they are eventually gonna be paired up. Right. So in more than the moderator visionary sense. Right. Cause yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we're like getting into like time travel stuff, like where these books are going, but like there's some connection there and like we'll have to we'll have to see. So I wonder if it has something to do with it. Because I think they're obviously had they'd been using her in the first place to get to her brother, who is a dreamer, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they gotta keep her in line, I guess. All right, I guess we have to talk about Ronan at some point here. I'm on this long without it. I know. Well, okay. And like, here's the thing. I talked about this last week when we talked about Opal. Like, I'm just very nervous about Ronan and how he's doing. And what more to say about it? I mean, he's just like not in a good place. I'm not in a good place about it. Yeah, I think that was definitely when you were saying that. Just kind of being nervous about revisiting it because of that. I, it definitely. I do. I think that was part of the disappointment too. And maybe we, maybe this is better to say when we get into the night wash, but just how threatening and how much of a threat and obstacle that is to like everything and just how it didn't seem to fit with anything previously. That just, it bum, it's just such a bummer. It's just because it's so sad. Like you can't see how they're going to be happy if he just has this constant threat over him where it's like, if it's a day without dreaming, if it's a day away from the barns and it, just feels like this added obstacle that wasn't there previously or set up just to raise the stakes. And I just don't like it. It's very funny to me that I'm like deeply emotionally invested in like these two fictional couples, Adam and Ronan, and then Baz and Simon from Carry On Wayward Son, both of which are in like huge emotional turmoil in their respective series right now. And it makes sense from a narrative standpoint that these kids who have dealt with a lot of shit in their lives still are processing through that. But that doesn't make it any easier for me to want to like read these things. It like hurts my heart too much because I love them all too much and I don't like to see them sad. And it's just For Ronan in particular, it's kind of hard to see where it comes from. You get a setup of it in Opal. You know, he misses his his parents. He has that really sad moment. He misses Gansy, like when he comes down and like cries every time he like calls. It's very upsetting. And now Adam has left too. So you do get where it's come from, but you wanted at the end of the series to think that Ronan was strong enough to deal with this. Like he knew this was all coming, but he's so soft and he's so connected to everyone that he loves and he loves them so fiercely. I mean, that's a line that we get here to like friends for Ronan were time consuming. They got all of him. So he like Mm -hmm. is so consumed by his relationships that when they're taken from him and he's left isolated, it's really, it's really hard to see. I just, I didn't expect this from him. Harvard chapter is also just like mm-hmm. devastating. I, I couldn't even that whole scene where he's like sitting in the maze. I Yeah. It's just he's come so far in terms of like having those type of deep friendships. Like when you first start at the beginning of the Raven King, he's kind of isolated himself. And admittedly, we're catching him kind of just after trauma, but he hasn't let himself get that close to people. He hasn't let anyone know who he really is. So by the end of the Raven King, he finally has. So he finally has people where it means something more that he's alone because before he kind of always made himself alone. So now he truly is. And it is a bigger loss that 
element of things are coming into play. And then there's also just like this broadening of the world around him and then him being trapped at the barns. You know, when he mm-hmm. goes to Harvard, I think it's really interesting how he like looks at all of Adam's friends and thinks not necessarily that he thinks Adam's going to leave him, but like these are like people that Adam could leave him for. There's like different these kids that are like so just queer and like out there and it's like very different than when he's used to he was like the only gay person he knew in Henrietta it's it's very interesting to see him like ruminate on like what I think is like a very myopic way of thinking about the world he thinks about like when he was younger and he thought that like everyone had two brothers and everyone's mom was blonde and everyone's dad looked like Niall and then like you have aunt and uncle and that's it but he never even thought about their names because he just thought aunt and uncle was it and so like you really are getting the sense of how suffocating and insulated his life was growing up Mm -hmm. and so like the expansion of that is like also it's fascinating to see how it like unsettles him and unmoors him in a lot of ways because he's starting to like realize there's life outside of where he he grew up well that's why it's so sad of thinking him like especially he had wanted so much to go back home like all he was caring about in the earlier books was to be at the barns and he even says like if i'm going to be trapped someplace i at least it's this like he calls the barns like his extra family person or another family member but it's still like the idea of him being trapped anywhere is still just heartbreaking to like think about and it's like that classic quote that's like the difference between a prison and a home is, mm-hmm. is the key, you know, like it's, it still feels like a prison to him right now. Yeah. I don't know if this is the time to bring it up or if I should save it, but I did have some comments or thoughts about that open, like him reflecting on the openly queer friends of Adams. So I was almost taken aback by that line of him, like just even observing that these friends were openly queer than any of the Aglamy students he had ever said, just because like, I know that in the um, in the Dream Thieves, the, pretty much the entire book is about him dealing with his sexuality and coming to terms with that, that self-acceptance. And it's wonderful, but it was never really direct discussions or like reflections of identity, like what it means to be gay. Like, like he never thinks about, I think I did a word search. The only time the word gay even comes up is when he wonders if like Kavinsky is gay. And so that idea of like him actually reflecting on like having gay friends or like being the only gay person, I like never thought he was thinking about those things. And admittedly, like you don't get any of his point of view in Blue Lily, Lily Blue, which is probably when he would be thinking about this because by the time the Raven King comes up, he's just like tunnel vision obsessed with Adam. Mm -hmm. And then too, with Adam, when he starts realizing he has feelings towards Ronan it's never really like a self-reflection, like, oh my God, I'm like attracted to a guy or I don't mean, oh my God, but like, it's never really about a sexuality. It's more about just like, wow, if I pursue this relationship with um, Ronan, I know I need to know I'm going to be hundred percent committed because there's no games with Ronan. So just the idea of even like using this language, I thought was just really surprising. And I don't even know really what to think about it. It just, I, I th- but I guess it does make more sense that he would be thinking about these things now that he's in like an open relationship with a man. So like he might be more used to the vocabulary or whatever, but, and that just brings up one of the questions I had for you guys about like why this book never shows up on any queer reading list regarding the the Ronin thinking about like queerness in a broader sense mm-hmm. in this I think that's you know I think there's a good chance that that's just a reflection of Maggie's being more mm-hmm. more aware and more not involved but yeah I guess just more aware of of the of the queer community as a community 
it's funny because I told my wife this and I was just like, because I was like, it's kind of refreshing that there's like these queer characters that's so important. Like there's just this big part of the series, but it's not really about queerness where like that's just such a big part of most books. And then she's like, oh, is it because like a straight woman wrote it? And I was like, well, I was like, I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I was like, well, that's probably I was like, I don't really know how she identifies. I know she's married, but but yes, but that makes sense where she's getting feedback and trying to increase diversity, like having a non-binary character. So I get that. For me, I think like it's just it is weird. I just think like it's just part of this expanding world mm-hmm. view for Ronan at that point, because he doesn't know who he's going to be in Cambridge. But and he all he sees in Cambridge is like a different Adam than who he's familiar with. And it's like over sensory overload of like all these different options that like Ronan's never even thought about. And because he's had no reference point for it. So I took that more as being like, wow, this is a different world. It's a bigger, broader world than my world is. And is Adam going to be more drawn to that world than what he can have with me, which is so limited to this one specific place. And so I think that's how I kind of read that. But mm-hmm, I, that makes sense. You know, it is, we've talked about this before when we like first started. Maybe we didn't, but we, I think we definitely have talked about this with like Rainbow Rowell, who is also seemingly straight, like writing a queer couple. And Maggie, she's definitely tweeted before that she like has not said, like she's like, I prefer not to like discuss it. So like, I don't know what that means, but it is interesting how like this series in particular, like it is about a queer couple and it's not marketed in that way. Yeah, I was going to ask Joy if you had any theories as to why um, the Raven Cycle and call and now called on the Hawk is never really included in queer in queer lists because I think it's some of the best uh, like queer uh, representation, especially written from an ostensibly straight person. But yeah, no, I agree, and I mean, I don't know. The only thing I could ever think of is because it doesn't. It's not. most YA books that are on those lists, it is about it. It's like, it's about coming out. It's about finding your friends. It's about just realizing that. And it's more direct, like even the um, the dream thieves, it's so tied in with him also reckoning with being a dreamer. So I almost feel it's part of the reason I think we appreciate it some more. It's just, it is so much more complex, but I think that's the reason that it doesn't go on these lists. I don't that are just, I think a little bit more, I don't want to say obvious surface level. But then I was yeah. thinking that like Carry On is always on those lists and that's not a book about being gay, but it's just that the main character ends up in a relationship. Right. So then I don't really know, but that's more of a kissing book. So I don't know. It, if is. I, it is. Yeah. It's very ro- more it. romance focused. Yeah. Um, I mean, not that obviously we all think that the Raven King is um incredibly romantic. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I find it really frustrating. Like, look at all these lists. I was like, I know I pick books based on those lists. So if I was like a queer teen wanting to find a book, and if I'm looking towards that, I bet there's a lot of people who would really appreciate it. And And especially if you don't necessarily want to read a book about the struggles of coming out and you don't Mm -hmm. want to read about the homophobia and all of this and the self-hatred and all that, you want to read just something where somebody comes to terms, like realizes this about themselves, and then they Mm -hmm. develop into a really beautiful relationship with somebody. I think that those are just as important as those really coming of age, like coming out mm-hmm. queerness yeah. books. Um, and, and just as as a as a queer person reading the Dream Thieves, I feel like that's that's one of the best 
representations of that entire journey that I have ever read. So I think it's it would be so important for so many other queer kids to read this that I it bums me out that it's not a bigger part of the conversation. Yeah, I agree. Like, because it's almost reminded me a little bit of like Shit's Creek and that idea that they really don't deal like he thinks like his brother might be homophobic, but then you find out that he's totally accepting. Yeah. So it is really that's so um, funny that you like mentioned Shit's Creek Drake. Cause when we like talked about this previously off pod, you know, and you brought up like, you know, why the kind of like the journey is not really like the focus here. And it makes me think of like this in the documentary they gave at the end of Shit's Creek. Mm-hmm. Like Dan Levy specifically said, I don't want to have a town that has homophobia in it. I'm so I'm not going to. And we're like not gonna we're we're just living in this kind of more idealized version of what you want. And I feel like that's what again the strength of this series it's like it's not a thought that anyone has it's just like they love each other and mm-hmm. it, that's really powerful and important to see too yeah it's like they're in rural virginia where you know and i know virginia's turning blue or whatever but you know it's not it wouldn't be like that right. and even like they, they kind of like kind of take any politics out of it like gansey's parents are running for office and you know she's clearly going to be a republican and like so that's always been upsetting to me, but you kind of have to just ignore it. But um, anyways, but yeah, really oh, it is all really interesting because, yeah, that's as Jay just said, that's like one of the reasons we like love this. The dream yeah. themes in particular, it's all it is all very interesting. I think that like I, I do think she just kind of is for whatever reason is not interested in like getting too in depth into it, but just peppers that in there to show that there is like more. To mm-hmm. the queer world within her world, then and that it is very community based and not like as a, you yeah. know, it, there is no token gay friend, it's more of maybe a token straight friend. Yeah. And I know we're gonna have a lot more to say about the crying club, but I just really did love that it's this group of like queer friends that he ends up bringing under his wings because you know, we're going to talk about, he clearly in the Raven King, he's like, I can only think about saving these people because I feel I saved myself. And obviously Mm -hmm. he doesn't really feel there with his abuse and trauma yet because, well, we're going to get into that, but where he does feel confident and where he is in his relationship and in his sexuality and just, he found acceptance and love through Ronan. So like, that's an area where he can like give other people that feeling of acceptance and just given how through most of the Raven cycle, he was just feeling so unworthy of love. Like I just, that makes me so happy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Okay. So I want to finish up talking about Ronan though, because I mean, we kind of hit a lot of it, but like, I just, I'm, I'm just really concerned about it. Like, I don't know how it's going to go for him. This scene in particular, as always, as with the main theories too, Ronan's dreams are always so fascinating to me. They're so layered and they're so complex. But this dream where he um, is standing on like a shoreline, like looking at the sea. First of all, I love like he's, he doesn't like stories about plastic in the ocean. And I was like, <laughs> is that the power of Blue Sergeant's influence? <laughs> also, speaking of the power of Blue Sergeant's influence, Gansey being chained to a tree in <laughs> Oregon. You love to see it. I love it so much. But Ronan thinks about this at that point. He was filled with desire. The dream was made for longing for things just out of reach. It floated in the air like humidity. It washed up on the shore with the salt water. He sucked in more longing with every inhale and he exhaled some of his happiness on the other side. How miserable. Like, like that's what he's going through in this book. And eventually he does think, no, you're in control of this dream. Change it into like happiness. Like do it. Dolphins. Sure. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> it's like you're happiness with dolphins. 
But like he, it's just, again, very emblematic of what he's going through. And I'm nervous in terms of just like overall end game, like what it's going to mean for Ronan. Like, what does he want? That little line from Declan about how Adam is maybe not enough for Ronan scares me. Again, we've yeah. talked a lot about how Maggie like says like she's not going to break them up because it's like not as an interesting conflict. But I do think they need to like continue their growth together. Ronan like needs didn't. to be able to grow. I think that's one of the biggest themes of this book is that he feels stagnated. He dreams about Adam being an adult all the time. And it's just a completely a reflection of how Ronan feels like he can he never can. He sees Adam changing. He never can. He sees Adam making other friends. He really can't. And, and then he thinks of the Barnes as he loved the Barnes. He was bored of the Barnes. He wanted to leave. He wanted to stay. So when we say, or when Declan says, that even Adam isn't enough for Ronan. What it, what Ronan needs is Ronan. He needs Ronan to be able to grow and to become an adult and to mature and to change, but he can't change at, or he doesn't feel like he can change right now. And he can't with the way that his dreams and the night washer are working on him. <laughs> Shout out to the cow balloon. Shout out um, to the cow balloon. High comedy. The funniest the moment of the Funniest fucking thing. And and the best part is thinking about Declan being on hold basically that entire time. Like Ronan drops his phone. So Declan is Declan is just overhearing this, like, uh, bring me the crack. There's a cookie in it for you. <laughs> Snack, beef, cake, cheese, trash. trash. Like and Declan's just like like looking in the camera like he's on the I don't office. Know. I don't want to know. He's just like, I whatever. We can another shout out chainsaw. to Chainsaw. Yeah. Yeah. No, Chainsaw I loved so much in this, like the which you're going to talk about. But I also just love that, like, she's like, Chainsaw was a quitter in that part too. And then how when he's in the couch and he, like, Chainsaw has her own pooping blanket on the couch. <laughs> it's like, it's gross, but it's so funny. <laughs> it's so funny. It's so funny. One last thing I wanted to bring up to you about Ronan, though, is like I'm interested. We talked a lot about the Lynch family. I'm interested to continue to see Ronan's thoughts on that. You know, he thinks at one point he'd idolized Niall before he died. Maybe he didn't want to know more about this side of him. And I wrote, rip that Band-Aid off, babe. Let the truth of what an asshole your father was fortify you. Like, just I want that for him. I want him to have that reckoning. And I think that in a lot of ways, much like the Barnes is a physical tie, actually literally tying and holding Ronan back at this point, the memory of Niall is is doing that as well. And so I mm-hmm. think that, that I'm going to be interested to see how that continues to grow as he learns yeah. more about what a shitbag he was. Yeah, same. I feel the exact same. So uh, let's talk about Adam then in the crying club. So yeah, if you've listened to all of our episodes along the way here, we've talked a lot about this like different Adam at Harvard, like from the beginning, it's just obviously like stuck in our mind as something that was like, I don't want to say concerning, but also it's just kind of when you read this book and we've tried to like parse through our feelings on it. So how's everyone feeling about that? And these, this different Adam at Harvard now that we're finally here and we're getting this chapter. I mean, I, I totally get why he has decided to like rewrite his own past at Harvard. Like it is completely his prerogative to change or to, to not disclose information about himself to these new people. And and I totally understand the impulse to want to be somebody else. But I feel like it's very upsetting that he's telling people that his father was a saint. It's really upsetting that he is like Ronan said, playing card games where the punchline is poverty. Mm-hmm. I feel like that sucks. I feel like that is a 
betrayal of everything he has overcome to be there. It's a betrayal of all the other kids in poverty that are still trying to overcome these things. It's It feels like a betrayal of Ronan somehow. I think with the his father's stuff and the, the sacrifices Ronan made to protect Adam from, from all of that too. It's all very upsetting, even though, yes, I completely understand why he does it. And and I just, I, you know, maybe I'm, I'm like Ronan in that way where I don't like the lie of it. The lie is what's upsetting right. the most like, to me because the rest of it, I completely understand. And I have some thoughts in terms of like the, what he's actually emulating, but it's the lie. And it's also that line when they're in that fight where he's just like, this is all I have. Like you have your brothers. And I was like, you have Ronan. Like he's right here. He's been there through yeah. the whole time. Like that's the line that like kills me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the willfully like spinning this whole new narrative versus like just not saying anything. Like that's a perfectly right. valid option here too. And like, we don't know like to what extent that came out. Right. So we get this from his other friends to talk about like how, Oh, Adam just had this like very Catholic Southern upbringing. We're really interested to, to learn about that. So like, did they just start like, projecting onto Adam, like what their wish fulfillment thought of this. Well, no, I think at one point they say that he tells all these wonderful stories about, oh, that's true. about his family and, and specifically about his father, which is just really, I mean, like you said, the there's yeah. always the option there to just not say anything. Right. Or I'm to say just, I had a great childhood, but never sit there and, and explicitly tell wild lies about the man who, who fucked you up so much. It's hard to read. And it, you get why Ronan is so upset about it. And it's like on top of everything else, which everything else that like Adam, like experimenting with his look and things like that, that's like normal college stuff. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I'm, on, I'm on board with like, let Adam be who Adam wants to be in college. Like that's the time for experimentation for, for kids. Like, great. But yeah, that particular part of it is, is really hard to. Yeah. And it's, I, cause I kind of see there's two different things. There's the crying club and then there's kind of this new Adam mm-hmm. and Ronan, when they get back to the dorm room, he basically, he conflates the two. He's just like the crying club. Like, why did you lie? The crying club. Don't tell me that you lied, but I do think like the lying might've been like what he lied to, to the crying club and maybe to kind of be more approachable to them. But like, I don't think Ronan what he was seeing as being this completely different person is that much different than what he had already known. Like at one point he's like the idea of him being something else, something Ronan didn't know felt as unsettling as realizing that Adam's new friends weren't awful, but is this caretaking Ronan? I mean, this caretaking Adam, someone that Ronan doesn't know it's like Adam has always been a leader. That's something that Mr. Gray picked up on. Adam has saved people. Adam saved him. Adam saved Gansey. Adam saved Opal. So it's not really that different from the Adam that he knew. It's only like, I don't think he realized that other people could see that side of Adam that he knew. And then I actually think like, I know you guys, like we were talking about the uh, Gansey impersonation a lot. Um, And I think with the look, obviously it's like a Gansey vest, but really it's Ronan that he's kind of emulating. It's like the influence of Ronan is what's making him more of a caretaker. Like Ronan's first instinct is always to help people and not even just like Opal or Adam or Gansey. It's like, even when he found out Mr. Gray was going to be hunted down, he gave him the Mitsubishi. So like, that's always just been his instinct. And so I do think like it's because of their influence that he's become more of a caretaker too. 
Joy, I have mm-hmm. to say I got like chills when I read your notes about how this is like him actually just emulating Ronan because like it's so true. Ronan has the biggest heart. That's what we like love about him. And they talk about this a little bit too in this the last chapter or one of the last chapters, like before we stopped here, when they have this like phone call about like why Bride is helping Ronan and Adam talks about like you you like think without acting all the time, but there's an emotional cost to those things. And I like the idea that Adam is picking up on that and taking it and using it in a, a much more, I guess, you'd say like healthier way or more focused way than Ronan does. Like he's very specifically applying it to these kids who like really could use him. And I love that so much for them. Like, of course that's who he's thinking of. Like, and I think you pointed out too, like how Gansey like wants to help his friends, but he's like terrible at it. Yeah. But like Ronan actually like does it. Like he is the one who actually like can help people and like succeeds at it. And so I love that read on what yeah, that's good. Adam's yeah. doing. And even in little ways, like Ronan would always just know exactly how to diffuse a situation. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it always just came so natural to him and Gansey wanted so much and he always m- did the wrong thing. Almost always. Yeah. Uh, so I, I do. I love that. I love. And so I'm, I'm better about like fine Adam wearing like the Gansey vest. Great. Mm-hmm. Like I'm on, I'm on board with all that. I am frustrated with yeah, the lie, but I, I like a lot of And also we, like the, the poverty stuff, the playing yeah. games were like, because that was always something that Adam was very like fierce on. Like we don't make jokes about being poor. We don't, he was always very, mm. and it just, it feels very anti-Adam to be sitting there playing a game where the punchline is poverty. Yeah. I do think like this didn't change my feelings towards the epilogue. Because I almost feel like he had this closed journey. He's like, I'm not going to let my father haunt me anymore. But I think in that way, it's like, okay, I'm just not thinking about it. So he thought that this starting fresh, and even if that meant a lie, it's like he's over it. He doesn't really realize that to become over it, you really have to deal with it. You can't just like tuck it in a closet and not ever deal with it again. So I do think like it doesn't, it just shows like maybe he didn't make the progress that we all kind of hoped he did from the epilogue. It just really just shows like what a journey yeah. it is to like deal with trauma and overcome it. And I think too, yeah. like he's never had to like explain himself and where he's come from to anyone else mm-hmm. before. So he's like really like thrown into this new situation that like, for me, it doesn't like cheapen or like take away from the epilogue at all, because like in the context of like Henrietta Adam, that is the, best moment for him it's the best example of growth but now he's he's not henrietta adam anymore he's harvard adam and who's harvard adam going to be and that's something that ronan thinks a lot about too is like these different versions of adam and it like really makes me sad when he thinks about like this like miserable adam which is like old adam like he sees him come out but i I, for me the solace is that he eventually finds the Adam who's like the Adam from the bar and thinks about how like, this is the Adam who like, wasn't thinking about like how complicated he was. He was just was. And so I get that Adam is like off in this new world and he like, doesn't have the tethering force that is Ronan to like be his truest self. And like, I like that Ronan still brings that out in him. Really nice to see. Oh, this is what it is. A complicated Adam who didn't try to hide or reconcile all the complex truths inside himself, who just was. That's nice to see. 
Well, just in terms oh. of the, where the growth was, just two last things I have for Adam. Just the fact that like when all of the chaos happens in the dorm room and just immediately he simply tells Fletcher, like, help me. Like those are two words that never would have ever simply come out of his mouth before. And then just accepting the $4,200 from Ronan. And it's like, a, he never would have accepted money, even if it was his fault in the past, but it just shows like not even the growth there, but also that they're kind of partners now. <laughs> oh, I love it so much. <laughs> so like this look is just like melancholy with a capital M to me in a lot of ways. And that's like where most of the pinch stuff is for me. We get like some great flirting for that from them. Adam like pressing his foot against Ronan and then like his whole leg. Adam Parrish, what you minx, what are you doing? Like <laughs> Like, puts it, and Ronan is just like sweating. <laughs> I'm sweating. I'm, I'm sweating now. Talking about it, you know, like that's a great, a great moment. And he was just like, and then he like leads them up to bed and like the thing in the stairwell and they're holding hands. It's all, that is all like too much for me. I get the rest of my like flirting and like super like spoony moments from Declan as we talked about a little bit already, but I feel like pretty much everything else from Adam and Ronan in this book, like, is a knife to my heart. In yeah. A lot of ways. Well, there's there's the knife to the heart, and then there's also the horn just being uh-huh. turned up to eleven. Like, yeah, it is so horny. Like when they they're like making out in the hallway or whatever, and Ronan or like in the entryway to Adam's dorm room, and he's like, "Well, there was the bed, and there was Adam." Yeah. And like, <laughs> there's no middle ground. It's either like sad or like extreme longing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, the longing is what like really gets me in this book and it makes me really sad. I wrote this down. Ronan missed him like a long. And then I mm-hmm. wrote Maggie just really coming for me on page 17 of this novel. Mm-hmm. Like we are barely in it and Ronan is missing Adam like a long. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and it's so upsetting because it feels like unrequited pining but it isn't like it obviously isn't unrequited but it feels that way like there is that like you said sense of melancholy like like a deep melancholy to it i also wrote this down i was feeling like very dramatic i feel like when i wrote these notes he longed for him even when he was holding him and then i wrote maggie what did i ever do to you to deserve (laughs) longing for someone when you're holding them another dramatic moment is is ronan thinking about how he felt when he first saw adam like when he first saw him back in Henrietta and he thinks Ronan hadn't known anything about who Adam was then. And if possible, he'd known even less about who he himself was. But as they drove away from the boy with the bicycle, this was how it had begun. Ronan leaning back against the seat and closing his eyes and sending up a simple inexplicable, desperate prayer to God, please. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> also like his hand kink starting incredibly early. Oh God. Yeah. He's like looking at his knuckles. Oh my god, I can't. No, um, yeah, so also this you smell like home. You smell like home. Oh my god. Or every time they hug, they hug so hard. Mm -hmm. So hard. So like we have to talk about them like missing each other on the quad, which is like very alarming about how Adam is changing and Ronan can't change. Is it them not recognizing each other at Harvard? Right. They that's I now I have to look at it so I don't spiral. Is that like, you know, they where this series is going is ultimately going to be to like find Ronan a way out, a way to like continue to be who he needs to be without this tether to the barns and to dreaming. So like they just need 
time to like be somewhere together and to like continue that growth together. You know, Ronan thinks at one point to he and Adam had been making the same memories for so long that he'd forgotten. It didn't always have to be like that. Adam was here having a new life, becoming a new person, growing from something beaten down into whoever he was meant to be. And Ronan was Ronan still hidden away in the foothills of Virginia, dropped out of school, living in the place he'd been born, keeping his head down so he could stay alive, making the same memories he'd been making for months. Adam was changing. Ronan couldn't. So like they got, they got to like go on that journey together. And I'm going to use the metaphor that Melissa used to describe Adam and Ronan once that they like grew like a tree together. And like, I still think they are. And like, but now Adam's just like a little branch that is like growing out on its own. And like Ronan needs whatever botany metaphor, gardening metaphor you need to like let him let his branch keep growing again now too. Right? Yeah. Yeah. They're okay. Basically what I need you guys. Well, it's like in the next book, they're like, he's going to have to branch out. He's going to start doing all these new adventures. So he is going to obviously change. So at least that's something in the direction. I don't, it's a scary direction, but it's something. I just, it's also weird just thinking about how he thinks he hasn't changed. And it's just this, like how little his life is when he's this like magical being. Yeah. That's a really good way to put it. Oh my God. Yeah. I will say that there's a couple parts, though, that I feel like did was reassuring that wasn't just completely horny and wasn't just completely a melodrama, like where they were kind of just reaffirming their love for each other, like the whole like, I want it too much, or the we're still okay, this isn't about that. Um, and then when like Adam's like, you know, tell me to go to school closer to you and I will. So just like kind of those affirmations, uh, those. Yeah. Great, great moments of affirmation from Adam in this book. You know, I have actually had this thought when reading fanfic about Adam and Ronan. I've read this one particular like ongoing alternative universe where Adam does not say that he loves Ronan. And it's like a point of contention for them because he's like emotionally repressed from a lot of stuff with his father, which like is totally a valid track. I could see the relationship going on, but to like get this in Canon where Adam is like very freewheeling with his feelings for Ronan is very satisfying to me. Yeah. Like at yeah, that he, moment where he's like, I saved your life because I love you. Like it was just so, so easy a word or a phrase to throw out. And, and Ronan thinks about how he's like going to take that first half and just like put it away for a bad day. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's it. inc- it, it's incredible stuff. And then I love this so much. I mean, this last chapter, I texted Tasha last night. I was like, I can't believe we chose. We did this to ourselves, cutting off where we did, like, mm-hmm. and we did it intentionally. However, like, it's such a good setup. But where this ends with him showing up and Ronan thinking about how he was always the one who. Oh my God, what's the quote? So this is uh, one of my, or this is my favorite swoon moment, but I'll just read it now since we're here. The idea of Adam Parrish on a motorcycle was more than enough birthday present for Ronan. He was senselessly turned on. He couldn't think of anything else to say. So he said, what the fuck? Normally this was his job to be impulsive, to be wasteful of time, to visibly need. What the fuck? <laughs> I, I just love, love that. The, the visible, like, like Ronan thinking about like, I'm always the desperate one throwing myself at him. Like I, you know, t- and to describe Adam as visibly needing. I love that because Adam is so, you know, he's got so many walls and he's so cold sometimes, but to know for sure canonically that he is so open with Ronan about his needs and his wants. I mean, he does seem very direct about that. So it shouldn't be that surprising. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. Well, God, and we have to talk about 
the line. But before about the motorcycle, I also really like it because it's like in Maggie's world, the biggest turn on ever is like driving someone else's vehicle. So I blew with the Cam- Camaro, but it also reminds that the first time that Usura started seeing the Inklings that Adam had a crush on Ronan was when he was learning how to drive stick in Ronan's car. So I know which they refer to later. I love that so much. It's so good. I guess before we get to like the big line that just like devastated. <laughs> I also just really like to when Adam shows up at the barns and Ronan's like shocked Adam immediately pieces together like what's going on in Ronan's head that like he Ronan is having a hard time for whatever reason believing that's actually Adam. And so Adam says like, what do you need from me to like believe that it's me? And I like love that soul deep understanding for them. It's it's great. So that that moment is is fabulous. Oh, also I've neglected to mention this like very hot Adam flirting moment. The words were only an excuse to breathe in Ronan's ear. It made a marvel of his nerve endings. Did you see like some Tumblr post about where because about how Adam learned how to flirt from Declan? I was literally right. just thinking about that. Yes, yeah. absolutely. He totally did. And like, oh, both of them here in this book, just too much. But yeah, like. Oh, I love it. And he's like doing that again about how open he is. He's doing this in front of like a group of people. The fact that he's like never shying away from his feelings for Ronan is incredible to me. I love it so much. So, quote Matthew Lynch, why can't you just say I love you? Because they're extra. They're because extra they're fucking extra. Yes. We're extra. Latin nerds. So, <laughs> it was possible that no students at Aglenby had ever come away with such a thorough understanding of Latin or possibly each other, which rest in peace to me. I love that line. But then what these two idiots say to each other. I can't even say it. I'm going to die. Tamquam alteratum. <laughs> like the translation of that is like like another self, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Something like that. It basically means yeah, as like if a second self. As if yeah. a second self. Right. Yeah, that was like gonna be my swoon, but it's like even more than just a swoon. Like, it's just like, I can't even handle it. Like, no expectations I had for this ship could have like put me in the mind frame to like handle that they were at this level of like intensity. It is insane. So intense. Too much for me to handle. Well, I I said this beforehand. I'm currently wearing socks that say on the bottom of the foot, and the other side says Alter Edom. And every time I wear them, it like brings me a lot of joy, but also just like makes me feel like a lot of feelings because it is just, it's so intense. It's such a, again, a soul deep connection between the two. I I just want to know how did it happen? Like, how did that just come up? Were they like reading Latin? Well, that's probably what happened. So they're just like reading the Latin together. Isn't it from like a, like an epic poem or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, oh my God, like who pitched it to each other first? I don't know. Oh, this will be like a cool thing we'll say to each other. <laughs> That's got to be Ronan. That's got to be Ronan all Ronin over it. All over it. Yeah, it really does. Oh my God, though. I, I just can't so, handle it. Just like great stuff here from them. I mean, it's hard stuff, but like it's stuff that makes sense for the most part, like given where they are. There was no world in which Adam going to school so far away wasn't going to affect them, but they mean so much to each other. I feel okay about it. That's me telling myself I I feel (laughs) I don't like really, as I've said before, catch me at midnight when uh, Mr. Impossible comes out for Mm -hmm. me, like word searching Adam to make sure it's going to be so hard. 
I was relieved to hear you say that because I always do that kind of stuff. I'll like do the searches and then I know that I'm like spoiling myself or whatever, but I was like, I can't help it. I just I can't help it either because I'm like too nervous. I've been keyed up for a year and a half. www.whereisadamparish.com. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's fine. Uh, we'll get answers soon. Again, good stuff here. Maggie as always does keep us very well fed. There's not a ton of direct Adam Ronan interaction here, but what we do get is just, it's just so good. I was actually really surprised by how much like Adam was able to stay present despite being like, you know, however many States away. Yeah. So really good point. So I think now we, to wrap up before we get into our superlatives, time to put our tinfoil hats on and talk about what the hell is going on with bride who the first time I read this book, I read it as bird. I, every time I did that too. And so it's taking a lot for me to say bride every time I say his name, but here I am. So we all have similar like related, but like different theories about what's going on with, with bride. I'm trying very hard to like, think about it more with the discerning eyes. I go through this read and I have some thoughts. Tasia, I like your theory. Start with that one. Who, who is bride? So I I don't have any evidence to back this up. I also haven't really read, I I haven't done the research either, but I haven't read this theory anywhere else. So I don't know if this is just like my own weird, I don't know. But my theory is that Bride himself is a dream and that his dreamer died and that he somehow found his way back to a dream. Because we know Aurora at least was able to live for like three days after Niall died um, or to be awake for three days after Niall died. So Maybe knowing that he needed to be back in a dream in order to continue to live, he found his way back to a dream, but now he needs somebody to dream him again so that he can come back. And that's why he's sort of grooming Ronan to trust him and grooming Ronan to to pull him out because he can't pull himself out and he needs Ronan's trust in order to do that. And so at that at the end of the book, when all that stuff goes down and and he's got Ronan and he's got Hennessy together and they pull him out. Like maybe that's what happens. I yeah. don't know what his motivations are. I don't think they're good. I I don't know if he has anything to do with the lace, but I kind of feel like he does. But the lace says, or, or they said the, the lace is afraid of bride, right? Yeah. So um, there's not a lot of lace stuff in the first half of mm-hmm. the book. So I, like, I don't have a lot of thoughts on it. In terms of bride's motivations, I was very alarmed by a lot of the language in the first dream with him and Ronan, where he comes in and he's like, we gave them access to this world and like they, th- they being non-dreamers and it's very antagonistic towards anyone who is not a dreamer. And he's basically advocating for like overthrow of the world. So it's very scary to me. I think that's his motivator. I, I, my thought in theory is, is that he, wants to weaponize Ronan. And I like that you use the word grooming too, because I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist in any way, but I, I get a lot of like grooming, like a sexual predator would groom a child mm-hmm. vibes here. He's preying on a lot of Ronan's insecurities and self-doubt that we just talked about already. This idea of, of being alone and being isolated from the rest of the world. And there's a very clear parallel between what Bride is talking about of they've taken this world from us and you being forced to stay here at the barns like he can't go yeah and i think he's the one that's kind of setting some of that stuff up like like if bride is the one say behind like the excess of night wash because we remember from opal that dream time can get fucked up for all kinds of reasons so 
if Bride is the one fucking that up, then he could be the one that's making Ronan feel like he can't leave. I think he was also the one because when Ronan brings back the murder crabs and fucks up Adam's dorm, Bride was right there. And he later says like, oh, that wasn't me. Like you weren't paying attention, but he was there intentionally messing with Ronan's head while all that was happening. So he is trying to set, he's doing that classic predator thing where he's trying to separate Ronan from everybody that cares about him and everybody that Ronan could use as support. Yeah. He's very, the, him pointing out later, like the murder crabs that was on you. That's not me. Feels very pointed, like very mm-hmm. deflection. Like I yeah. read a Tumblr theory, like right after I read this book that like he actually sent like the murder crabs back with Ronan and that he's way more active and like mm-hmm. trying to isolate Ronan. And I, I do still think that here. And going back to my theory, if if Bride is indeed a dream, but if he's a dream that can dream, because we know that, or we think at least that um, Ronan can dream things that can dream because in the dream thieves or whatever they, and, and green mantle is after Ronan so hard, they think, why don't you just dream something like dream a gray Warren? And Ronan's like, I'm not giving that power to anybody else. Well, what if somebody else did? That is and so then, so he would be extra that, you know, extra, this world is for dreams. This world is for dreamers. Well, and then one of my questions too is, okay, so this is, this comes up with the fairy market. People say something about, they're talking about bride, but they don't say his name yet. And someone says, all this talk about a man with incredible things, leading them on a merry chase after that thing in Ireland. And we know from the first chapter after the prologue, that that is where Carmen's brother died and he was a dreamer and he had killed people. So like, was Bride first trying to weaponize Nathan Farouk Lane and it blew up in his face and some, they caught them. The moderators caught them and mm-hmm. killed Nathan. And so or now Nathan Bri- himself being too old and wise to, to fall for some shit. That's, that's a really good point. And so then Bride now has jumped to Ronan, which again brings up these questions about like how all these dream spaces are connected to there's a way more here than I thought there was essentially like the first time I read this book. I am just listening because I actually didn't have any theories. I just had tons and tons of questions. And like one of my questions is what did he do in Ireland? But I love, I like what all of you guys are saying. And like, I do think that there's a threat there. And I just hated him saying like, it fucking hates us. You're made of dreams and this world is not for you just because I hate someone telling Ronan that, but I never even thought about it in terms of like grooming and like the predator aspect of it. But I do think though, that the only way that Ronan is going to figure out a way to like have any sustainability in his life, he is going to have to learn it from Bride. So he had to learn shit from Kavinsky. Yeah. Yeah. He was the antagonist. So yeah, there's probably, that's a really good point. There's probably plenty to learn from Bride. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like finding that balance of like, learning what he needs to but like not letting it overcome him mm-hmm. but if he is like that makes sense because like the one takeaway or question i really had well, i mean i had a ton of questions but one of the questions was if there are this many dreamers in the world i just don't understand like how like the ley line energy is working out like if kavinsky was enough to kind of make caves water go away and now we're finding out there's just like i mean not a ton but obviously a lot more dreamers in the world than we ever knew about i just don't understand how that's not impacting energy in a way that would I think they're probably really spread out and also mm-hmm. probably I mean presumably not dreaming at the level that Kavinsky was because Kavinsky was dreaming constantly and he was yeah. dreaming in a way that was very draining and also I think most places don't have a caves water 
to to tap out and doesn't necessarily have a, a caves water type place to get more dream energy from. So they're probably just dreaming regular level stuff. But then I have this question too, because Bride says that it's hard for the dreams to hear Ronan when it's far away, like not the other way around. Like when he's far from the ley line, when he's far from the forest, except Bride calls it our ley line. So like, hmm. what does that mean? Like, I, I still have a lot of questions about, like, again, how these magical systems connect. Bride also says at one point, if you want to kill someone and keep it secret, don't do it where the trees can see you. The trees things was really confusing to me. Yeah. So I have a lot of questions about a, a lot about all of that. And but I do think I can see much more clearly now, like how Bride is like an insidious force. And one of the things we've talked about previously I think just like amongst ourselves, um, Tisha and I is about like how frustrating it is. And like Adam brings us up too later that like Ronan is just willing to go along with this and like believe Bride, but like reading it again, seeing how desperate and depressed Ronan is in this book, it like makes a lot of sense. And again, the grooming stuff, you know, Bride says things like we handed them the keys to the goddamn car. Like he's using metaphors that Ronan is like gonna relate to like Ronan's big car guy like that's very important to him so it's like very intentional to me on reread mm-hmm. and it makes me very nervous this is my other question though how does this all then connect to more Cora etc so they like Brian talks about playing this game where you like make the 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 spiral or whatever and the spots get smaller and smaller and he says to Ronan like you know which rabbit are you going to like follow either like the more Cora train or like Bride. And it says, I, he says, either rabbit will take you to the same warren. We're all struggling the same direction these days, foraging for crumbs. Well, Morikora is presumably a dreamer, right? So right. Um, she might, I mean, she probably has a greater knowledge of bride than a non-dreamer would. And also, I think, I suspect maybe bride's motivation might have something to do with um, reconnect, like connecting all of these places of power together that are on the ley line. Like, Back in, I think, Blue Lily Lily Blue, um, Adam tells Persephone that like he can feel that what Cabe's Water wants is to be connected again to these other places of power. And and she says that that, w- that world would look like a very different world. And he says, bad or good. And she just, you know, Persephone doesn't really deal in binary concepts like that. But if he's trying to connect all of these places together and give that power back to the dreamers and the dreamt, um, and all these dreams are are being like inexorably drawn to to bodies of water and places of power like that right now. Like this feels all very like Bride is is a conductor of this giant orchestra that's trying to make all this happen. And maybe that's the end of the world because we don't know what that world is going to look like if they're all connected. Yeah. Did you guys see a connection to uh, Matthew's wandering had never really come up before? So was I could, didn't know if like that's including like like related to the frequency of the night watch or is it because he's like now further away from the barns yeah. or if it's just because he's getting older? So it would make sense. I think sense that's if, a like, new every- thing too. Yeah. 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 A lot of different things are happening and I feel like it's all way too coincidental for it to not mm-hmm. be connected to Bride. One of the things that does make me really nervous though is like at the end of the first chapter where Nathan Fruklane is killed the last line is someone is coming to end the world and then the next chapter starts saying Ronan Lynch was about to end the world and I, I was like is this a moment are we meant to have, like learned our lesson from Noah I've been dead for seven years journey mm-hmm. at this point mm-hmm. like 
I think so. I think so. Like, I think Ronan is going to find himself in a position based on where he is heading with Bride, where he's going to like be in that position to be the one to bring about the end of the world. And he's a, I trust that he'll eventually realize that, like, oh no, this is bad. I got to get away from this guy. Like, I should not be here. But, like, I think he, it's going to, what this series is heading towards is like Ronan is going to be the potential to bring about the apocalypse in one way or the other and how that's and Hennessy out, too. Yeah. And because I feel like Bride has very intentionally picked the two most vulnerable people. Yeah. To to groom to be on his side, to be his allies, because they're both so desperate for answers in different ways. And they're both so so desperate for that connection that He's he's I feel it feels very intentional that he's picked them. I also wonder how many well, I guess it might be more than I'm thinking, but like how many dreamers have created human dreams because that does just up the ante of like how they have to figure out answers just if they have all these people who are like depending on their lives too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, it seems like basically a lot of everyone we've known. That's what I was just about to say. Yeah. Like, oh, maybe it's more than I <laughs> they was. They all keep doing it. Like, I mean, we got Jordan, but we also have more Cora. Mm-hmm. Um, we have Niall. And I'm just laughing it, again it, about more Cora and Niall just petty dreaming. Oh <laughs> I'm laughing about Matthew chanting more Cora with like food in his mouth and no one knows what he's Oh my gosh, Matthew. Oh my, I know Matthew thinks at one point about how like he uh, is glad he has so many friends. Like if you didn't have enough friends to drive you around, you're like doing life wrong. But also he'd fail mm-hmm. his driver's test. Uh, I can't wait for his POV in the next book. I'm rolling oh, It's going to be it. so good. I was very confused by like how Lindenmere was like described, especially in the first half, but more about like how Caveswater like wasn't. And like at some point when Ronan is thinking about Caveswater, he says something like Ronan had an idea that it existed somewhere else for a long time. It only now whispered its way into the world this time in the shape of a forest. And it just seems surprising that his understanding about Lindemir was super like that sketchy still because I felt like he had a firmer grasp of the relationship in Caveswater and like he went into making Lindemir so like very intentionally. And so part of me like because I hadn't realized about the Noah situation until you guys brought it up in the podcast. So I was like, wait, maybe when he brought Lindemir into existence, like Caveswater like came out of his mind or something. But uh, then he mentions at the end. So that's not it. So I just thought that was interesting and weird. I didn't really know why. I don't know that there's a good reason for it either, other than for Maggie to potentially introduce to new readers, like the idea of a dreamscape forest. Like, I think it's an inconsistency. And maybe the tree lights, because Mm, yeah, Bride does mention don't, don't do That's a murder true. in front That's of the trees true. if you don't want to get caught. Yeah, which is another thing like we've talked about, like how it's kind of confusing, how like the tree lights are part of Cave's Water, but obviously they've been there for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. it's very not totally squared away. But yeah, I agree. That's like a really weird part. And we do know from Opal too that like he's constantly thinking about Cave's Water. Yeah, that's a good point though. I should point out though, uh, like this book is when I... The, my freak out about Noah where I was reading about how like Ronan like is very like dedicated to his friends and he only has a few of them and he didn't mention Noah and that's when I texted Tasia being like uh oh I didn't need mention Noah like he's very good friends with Noah and she was like oh, they don't remember him and that's when I had a, my meltdown in a taxi cab <laughs> also what makes me sad 
retroactively about Henry Chang, who, again, we've processed our feelings on Henry Chang, but like Ronan doesn't even count him as a friend, which is what to me makes him feel like an interloper in the main series. I I don't like the idea of any of the gangsy having friends that aren't like the gangsy. Yeah. Like they have, if they're going to have soul deep connections, the people can only be with the gangsy. They can have other friends. I like Fletcher. I like all these other people we've met at Harvard. Great. But they can't take the place of the game. <laughs> Any other major thoughts before we get into some superlatives here? Let's start with favorite quote. I only have two, so I'll read them quickly. And then because you guys have a lot more and they're all fun, we should read them all. I said, leave it to Gansey Boy to always bring the humor in, and it's always unintentional because we don't get a lot of them here. It's like through text messages only. But <laughs> he, when Ronan texts him and asks about Boudicca, he responds, reached out to a few peers, it said, as if he were 60 instead of the same age as Ronan. Classic Gansey. That's too, because like right after that, you get like the only text from uh, like a secondhand text from Blue, and it's just like Blue. That's a killer line, just right there. You got like one line, and you nailed it. So, mm-hmm. um, I also just like this is a fabulous character description of Fletcher, who is one of the crying club. His great round expanse was held in by a snazzy sweater vest. He seemed as if he ought to be smoking a cigar or backing slowly into the black and white photograph he had emerged from. Like, you get such a vis- visceral, like, image of what this guy looks like. I love it. I liked uh, the calico might not even be a cat at all. It was cat shape, but some were, so were some birthday cakes. Funny. And then when Ronan is trying to deflect from uh, Declan in the car and he's eating a bag of chocolate chip covered peanuts, he's like, he choked a little bit on the peanuts, but otherwise managed to look diffident, unconcerned. It would be fine, his peanut eating added. Let's talk about something else his peanut eating suggested. You're being unreasonable to even ask the, pe- uh, the peanut eating concluded. <laughs> That's good. Another great like Declan and Ronan in car scene. Yeah. Yeah. Maggie is so good with those like she's just so descriptive and so I, I just love her her style i also found um did you guys think that ronan was like funnier in these books than he had been previously i did like in the scenes with him and declan but i mm-hmm. do think like i said before i think it's him and declan's evolution of their relationship yeah. he, and he's also softening in a lot of ways i mean he's mm-hmm. like an offshoot of like his growth in yeah it's a lot of the, to see it. some of the edge has kind of come off ronan a little bit yeah, yeah. That's true. That's fun. And then the other one I liked was Jordan liked him well enough. He was the young vice president of an area bank, a slender bone Peter Pan, a boy in a grown-up world, or vice versa. He still bought himself toys and waited for his phone to tell him when to go to bed. He lived in this mass-produced mansion with roommates, not because he couldn't afford to live alone, but because he hadn't yet learned how to. What an indictment of like millennials. And <laughs> like I love it. It's so funny. Yeah, that art forgery world is like very, very interesting too. You can trust that the Venn diagram of cats and folks willing to throw cats is a circle. Just right. excellent stuff. Yeah. Um, you are made of dreams and this world is not for you. It is, uh, you know, shitty bride stuff, but it's a beautiful quote. Yeah. I mean, there is no denying that. I think this one's from either Fletcher or Elliot. I can't remember. It's Fletcher. It's Fletcher. Okay. Yeah. So he's, he says, um, of Adam. He's like Twain without the racism. His words, the gravy, our ears, the biscuits. <laughs> the classic chainsaw <laughs> chasing after the uh, balloon cow. And it says, what a fun game, her body language suggested. What an excellent cow. What strong decisions it had made this morning. How delightful it was it had taken to the air like she had. 
I just fucking love that bird. And I love that it like comes off the heels of she avoids the dream creatures. Like she doesn't like them. But as soon as the cow is airborne, she's like, ha. <laughs> she's like, this is Hello, amazing. Good sir. You are in the air now. <laughs> like, oh God, that whole scene is so funny. And like, shout out to what's the name of the, the scary dream thing? Like gasoline, which I'm really hoping comes back to like fuck up some moderators at some point because that thing is terrifying sounding and awesome. If he has to leave the barn someday, like I want that for him. However, dreamer farmer Ronan is like so endearing to me that like (laughs) I hope that we can find a balance here. Yeah. Where he still has cow balloons and gasoline and chainsaw and like has his menagerie of dream beings but like can also like go on vacation with adam maybe like live somewhere else from time to time yeah well i think that's the goal there because i think if if ronan were completely without any of these things he would be equally devastated on the other side right well one of the things i've I've talked about too is like is ronan like still gonna be able to dream after all this but Mm -hmm. also the like goal is that he can keep all of his dream things alive even without him like being a sounding influence. So even if he does have to give up his dreaming ability, that to me means chainsaw and gasoline and cows all are still existing, but he just like can't make more. I don't want that for Ronan either though, because I, I think so much of him is wrapped up in that. Cause he's, he's like Kala said, he's a creator. I was just gonna say, I think that that's what bummed me out the most about the like changes in the night watch was just that he can't leave the barns. Cause it just made me think of like, how is pinch going to have a happy ending? Cause just Adam has all these ambitions. You want those ambitions for him. So how is he going to have this like, you know, fancy professional life that he wants and that you want for him if he's like stuck at the barns. But of course that was like pre pandemic. And now we know a lot more people can work at home. So yeah. yeah. Ideas on that have changed a little. I just have one more. Hennessy would rather bleed out than date a boring white man in last year's suit. I mean, preach. Just an icon. An icon. Okay, favorite character. I I obviously love Ronan so much, but like, it's Declan for me. I'm with you on this one. Yeah, it's Declan. And I know we haven't been doing arc for like these middle of the book episodes, but I do feel like I really like Declan's arc so far. Like he's starting to chip Mm -hmm. away like this exterior he's built. And yeah. uh, I think it's what I like about Declan is he's just like such a surprise. And I can't say Ronan's my favorite because this makes me too sad. Like I love him, but it hurts me. So yeah, that's where I'm at. Joy. Yeah, mine would be Ronan too. But if it's not, I picked Matthew and I just love Matthew so much. Every time Matthew came up, everything he said, I just, it said like everyone wanted to hug Matthew and he wanted to be like, he wanted to let everyone. And I was like, all I want to do is hug Matthew. And I was like, I want someone to make me a Matthew Lynch doll so I can just have it with me and hug it. <laughs> Every time I'm just so overwhelmed by how endearing he is. We swore like a greeting card and with giving him like chewy food to eat and his fashion sense. And yeah, I love him. Matthew is great. And then favorite soon moment. I'm going to go first because I think this is the only thing I wrote about a week before I even cracked this book, which is often my NMO where I just like have swoon moments embedded in my brain. I can't stop thinking about them. So I just said, shout out to Adam. I need to take off your clothes parish because that line lives in my brain like all the time. I think about it all the time. Also just the idea of Adam the day before a presentation reading his sociology notes himself into the phone so he can listen to them. So he can drive 16 hours on trip, 16 hours for three hours with Ronan. Staggering mm-hmm. stuff blows me away. Yeah. I, I have not read one short sentence like that or a phrase even more times like than that mm-hmm. sentence. It's amazing. It's much for me. It's too 
much for me. So <laughs> Joy, how about you? So just how they say they love each other. Um, the t- t- I'm not going to say it. Sorry. Um, but then <laughs> the watch, which is incredibly romantic and doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, but I think you, when it, um, someone noted in their notes that it's going to come in handy probably next book. And then the line, Adam put a ripe, ripe cherry tomato in Ronan's mouth, warm from the sun, skin taut against his tongue, shockingly hot, sweet, savory seeds exploded as Ronan crushed the flesh against the roof of his mouth, which that really made me blush. And Very evocative. Maggie yeah. loves to write a sex dream. I know. <laughs> yep. Don't stop, Maggie. Mm-mm. Don't nope, nope. stop, Asia. Uh, well, I read mine earlier, but I uh, do have another just short one here. They hugged again merrily, waltzing messily into the kitchen and kissed merrily, waltzing more. I love just it. When Adam comes to visit Ronan. So Where's the line about Ronan thinking that Adam was like a rough and <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's the motorcycle. I he thinks that, uh, I think it's even before the motorcycle, actually, when he goes to visit him and he thinks that uh, Adam was elegant and rough and ready. No, it's because he saw it's in the dream and he sees oh, the motorcycle yeah, yeah, okay, and he's yeah. like the motorcycle reminds him of Adam, elegant mm-hmm. and rough and ready at once. Yeah, that is the I mean, horn. The horn. The horn. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where did we even come up with the horn? Or we didn't come up with it. I think it was a meme about the film Emma. Like and how horny that <laughs> it was a me- yeah, it was a meme, meme. somewhere and it now we can't. It's not a real word. We keep saying it on this podcast as though it is real, but the horn. <laughs> well, Guys, this was really fun. When we first were talking about this project of like doing all the Raven cycle, I was kind of nervous about Call on the Hawk because it felt very daunting. And I also didn't know like how much there would be to talk about, but like there's so much and I'm really impressed with how much we covered here today. And it was really fun. And I feel like I'm a little more locked into this book than I was before. Can you believe that we originally had it planned to do one episode for this entire book? I don't know what we were thinking because... Not yeah. Why is there so much here? There's so much here. Joy, thank you so much for coming thank on. You. This has been so much fun. We loved having you. We love having people who are at our level with these, <laughs> these mm-hmm. characters and this world. And no other level to be. There is no, no this is yeah. the best level to be. It mm-hmm. is the best level to be. Is it unhealthy? Maybe. I don't know. But like <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Uh, so, it's not drugs, okay? Yeah. <laughs> it's not drugs. Uh before we go um next week we will be covering the rest of call down the hawk and that will be it for now for the raven cycle universe which is very sad and then next week we'll also announce where we're planning on going from here on the podcast uh, but before we send up tasia where can people find you online you can find me on instagram and twitter at ragey cakes I'm on Instagram at Rin underscore reads. You can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at ActiaAge. You can also shoot us an email at ActiaAgePod at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you, especially um, next week. Any theories, thoughts about where this series is going? We would really like to, to have a bigger theorizing section, even than I think than we did this week. And other than that, if you wouldn't mind rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you podcast, that would be very helpful to us. We'd appreciate it very, very much. Otherwise, until then, see you next week. Bye. Bye.